years of poor predictions on Bike Live, my moment has finally arrived. When others said, no, he can't, I tell you all, yes, I can. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! Should that be Yes I Chan? Uh, welcome everyone to episode 88 of Bike Live on Motorsport 101. Another week where motorcycle racing saw history made. History that we still struggle to get our heads around. What a weekend it was in Valencia last weekend. Welcome everyone uh, who is listening live on Discord at the moment. And everyone that has downloaded this week's episode uh, of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. As we look back on the final round. The final round of this 2018 MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 season. It's been a fun ride, folks, so we're going to enjoy this one last uh, Grand Prix review show before we start heading into season review mode um, in a week or so's time. Andrea Vizioso rounding out the 2018 MotoGP season with his fourth win of the year to underline his status as the next best rider in MotoGP behind Mar- Marquez. Uh, but we saw plenty of history made, particularly if you are orange and ride KTMs. Paul Espargaro taking the manufacturer's first MotoGP rostrum. Miguel Oliveira taking one more victory as he bows out the intermediate class on a KTM. And the extraordinary story of Chan Onchu winning on his Grand Prix debut at the age of 15 years old and change. We will get into all of that over the course of the next two hours. We'll also talk all about the Valencia test as MotoGP does its annual brilliant job of making us all so excited for the next season, days after the previous season has just finished. Um, <laughs> and we'll talk about what's happened at Jerez today, Moto2 and Moto E, the new class in Grand Prix racing, testing today. Um, and there are some BSB news to bring you as well, uh, with Monocycle Live taking place this week at the NEC in Birmingham, and plenty of teams have used that as an opportunity to announce their plans for 2019. Uh, joining me um, for one more Grand Prix review for this season uh, once again is Andre Harrison and uh, yeah, Dre, leave it to MotoGP and its support classes not to go home quietly. Uh, I'm still upset. This is the last time we're doing this this year. It's mm. been such an amazing season, and yeah. you know, it, it gets a touch emotional because, um, my word, um, <laughs> I, I, where do you even start on this? Like, it's like it's like. Danny Pedrosa's final race barely gets a mention. I, I can tell you for free on, on, on the break before fall here for just a moment. It's sixth on our running order list. Yeah. Sixth. <laughs> it kind of puts it all into perspective, really, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but yeah, an incredible weekend of racing to top off what's been an incredible season. And um, yeah, um, history made. And I think somewhere Akiayo is still hung over in a park bench somewhere in Valencia. <laughs> As we speak, yeah. um, sharing that bench with uh, with Ryan King, probably. Um, yeah, probably. But, uh, <laughs> who's uh, never known it? Like KTM fans have never known life so good um, as they did last Sunday. Um, but we'll get into that um, very, very shortly. Um, just to um, clarify for all of you listening live or listening uh, on the download, this isn't our last bite live of 2018. We'll have at least a couple more um, before the end of this year with season reviews and the awards to get through before we get to Christmas. Um, uh-huh. Of course, this is the final Grand Prix of 2018. Um, before we get into that, though, the places you can find us, starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. And our website is motorsport101.com. Uh, Dre's got two new pieces of written content on there uh, right now for you to read. 
Uh, if you back us on uh, Patreon, you'll also have early access to both our weekly shows. Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101 is the place to do that. Now that we've figured out the settings, uh, you all get yourselves early access to both our weekly shows. If you back us at the $5 level, um, if you back Oops. us at the $10 level, of course, you can listen in live, uh, as several of you are doing right now. So huge thanks to AJ, to Cam, to Jason, and to Toki for listening in live right now um many of you may have already listened to um episode 170 the big fish of motorsport 101 earlier this week although if you haven't early access is available right now um and the downloadable edition will be available by the time this podcast is available to download um andre it was uh, an episode uh, focused predominantly on macau and uh, a macau grand prix that was largely overshadowed by well how even do we describe it? One of um, one of female motorsports most prominent figures taking flight. Um, yeah, Sophia Forrest literally getting catapulted into a catch fence. Um, for lack of a better term, as RJ's got, RJ went, 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 found the line and then quickly pole vaulted over it <laughs> um, to describe it when we were talking about it. But thank God she's okay. Um, that one because. Uh, yeah, seeing a car literally get sausage curbed and then catapulted into a fence at 170 miles an hour is um, nothing short of terrifying. But uh, yeah, I was back for this one as well. <laughs> my first show in my first show in three weeks, um, which uh, yeah, it, was, it was a pleasure to be back, even though there was little motorsport to actually talk about. I was like, I chose a great week to come back. Clearly. Um, but uh, yeah, I was I was back for this one, and it, it, it was a fun time talking about the 65th Macau Grand Prix. Dan Tickton completely dominating the weekend from start to finish in his now desperate chase for enough super license points to get on the F1 grid for next year. Hmm. Apparently, maturity points don't count. Um, but uh, yeah, he's on 35. The, the license you need 40. And uh, yeah, he might be going off to some winter series actions. The Dan Tickton Power Hour Tour could still very much be a thing. Obviously, Sophia Floresh and Show Savoy's a massive crash as well, which went all over social media. Um, Gabrielli Tarquini winning the World Touring Championship. The tender age of 56 is a thing. And um, at the time, like we had a big existential... It's actually quite funny. We had a massive existential crisis well, upon reading this yes, news. Um, because we were like, because that comparison with me, because like, as I mentioned it on stream, it's like we were competitive. Like, like it's gonna suck knowing that so many young motorsport fans are only gonna know Gabrielli Tarquini mostly as a sound emoji whenever someone donates money to Jimmy Broadbent on 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 YouTube and Twitch whenever he streams, rather than the fact that he's a legendary touring car driver whose first race was. 31 years ago um <laughs> and we compared it to chad odsu who um as like those guys who didn't know born in 2003 racing hero mark marquez yeah feel old feel old yet no yeah. i did yeah <laughs> gabriel taquini's grandson um, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, it's terrifying yeah it's an so, incredible oh. story yeah uh, episode yeah. 170 of motorsport 101 mm-hmm. is available uh, right now, we'll talk about episode 171 uh, before the end of the show. Shout out to Dan Tickton, though. I heard he's still going around claiming Pokemon gyms on Pokemon Go in the hope that those points count. Um, but, yeah, uh, but yeah he's, uh, he's having a busy winter by the sounds of it, so um, we'll follow that with interest. But yeah, episode 170 available right now. Let's, though, get on with episode 88 of Bike Live and start with MotoGP, uh, the final round of this MotoGP season. Uh, a race weekend that took place almost, almost exclusively, in wet conditions that was with the exception of qualifying which managed to beat the weather 
um, and take place in the dry. Not that that stops Mark Marquez from uh, extending his record, which he'd already claimed as the uh, most prolific crasher of the year um, in the MotoGP class. Um, he crashed once again in Q2 this time. Um, and spoiler alert, because you'll notice he might not get mentioned much in the uh, Grand Prix roundup. He crashes in that too, um, mm. in what were filthy conditions. So we can't really blame him for that one. Um, but, no. but the way he reacted to both, Dre, and by that I mean um, his body and the um, favouring of his shoulder. And we genuinely feared that when he crashed in Q2 that he dislocated his shoulder once again. Um, mm-hmm. We almost make light of these crashes now, Mark Marquez, because they happen so often. Um, right. And yet he just bounces up and gets on with it. But the guy's going to be going under the knife in December. And you can right. see why, can't you? Because these crashes, the two that you had in Valencia, just laid bare a pretty glaring weakness there. It is. That shoulder is going to cause him a serious problem if this keeps up. It's like Now is the perfect time, I think, to have corrective surgery on it. Because, uh, I mean... Like and again, props to on Twitter to Tammy Garali who actually did what journalists are meant to do, which is actually go into the camp and talk to these people, and found out that Marquez actually didn't dislocate his shoulder in either crash that he had this weekend. It was just hard hits on the shoulder, but he didn't actually dislocate it. Like Marquez was basically being preemptive. Yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't want to move it in case in case yeah. of a dislocation. And uh... exactly, he didn't, he didn't want to pop it out. So he was basically just taking defensive measures to make sure that he didn't pop it out again. And, basically. And those that have dislocated the shoulder in their lives will, will be able to tell you that once you dislocate it once, it basically increases the likelihood of you dislocating it again. Exactly. And, 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 yeah, I mean, it didn't help when, like, Neil Hodson and Keith Ewan immediately was like, oh, he's popped the shoulder out, he's popped the shoulder out again, and it's like, well, okay, to be fair, given the way Marquez was holding it, I can understand how they've jumped to that conclusion, even if they, he, it didn't actually happen, but it was yet another ridiculous Mark Marquez qualifying session, escapade, entertainment run, whatever you want to call it at this point, that's, uh, like... Shout out to Neil Hodson, by the way, for calling that quarter fine to crash in mm. perfect sync on commentary. I'm very critical of Hodson on commentary, but that one, he was absolutely on the nose. He was like, yeah, you turn left here, you go in right, if you turn into here and then the tyres are cold, you lose the front and down, you go and you just go just like that as Marquez yeah. falls over live on the hard camera and he goes down. But uh, literally, like, less than 10 minutes later, he's back out for another run again. The shoulder's okay. He talks to Dr. Mir, who was in Marquez's garage as it was going on. Um, And he qualified fifth, which would normally be bad, but only a tenth off pole. It was was a super close qualifier. So only 0.3 covering all the major manufacturers um, in this qualifier. It was super close all the way through. But Marquez only... Yeah. All six of them within point three. I mean, Paula Spagaro would qualify sixth on the second row. And to quote an old phrase of mine, remember that it becomes important later. Um, but uh, yeah, Marquez only a tenth off pole position, and he nearly ripped his shoulder out ten minutes prior. <laughs> I was sitting there going, "If he goes on pole position," I love that half my Twitter timeline was like, "He's, he's going to qualify on pole, isn't he?" Including it's myself. like he's just. Yeah, it's like we've just gotten used to Marquez doing crazy shit like this. It's 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 such a ridiculous X factor that I think we almost take it for granted sometimes just how freakish this man is. Um, and it's just something that was just incomprehensible. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the ideal qualifying result or the race result, but 
Marquez just continues to be entertainment personified, and even if he's 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 risking his fragile shoulder in doing so, it, it it's it's only captivating. It's it's utterly ridiculous. It was, and uh, and Mark Marquez would go down in the race again, and again, it wasn't exactly a slow crash that he had in the race, and you know his uh, bike certainly um, was destroyed, although Mark Marquez himself was largely intact, but. The race would take place in, in horrendously wet conditions um, as opposed to qualifying, which would take place in the dry. Maverick Mignales had taken pole position for Movistar Yamaha. The big story going into the race was the really the battle for third in the Riders' Championship between Maverick Mignales and Valentino Rossi, who qualified mm-hmm. 16th on the grid. Um, Valentino, he, along with his teammate Maverick, had to go through Q1 because they didn't make the best of the wet conditions in practice or outside the top 10. And because they were both in Q1, along with Andrea None and Jorge Lorenzo, they were always going to be at least two big names that missed out on the top 10. In the end, it was Lorenzo and Rossi who were the two that missed out. Um, and we'll come back to Rossi's race shortly because he would become a factor from 16th on the grid. Um, Mario Vinales fell backwards early Andre in that first part of the race. Uh, and I say first part because for those that didn't see it, the red flags would come out midway through. But it was pretty clear who had the most confidence, certainly early on in that race, Alex goddamn Rins. Um, what was Alex Rins smoking? And in answer to that, so my second question is, can I have some? Because it's, it's it must have been amazing. Because uh, before you know it, Alex Rins has got a four second lead and he's checking out. Um, just ridiculous confidence from Alex Rins right from the start. Got a brilliant start. Took the whole shot from from his best ever qualifying position. I think it was, I think it was his, Rins' his first ever top flight Grand Prix start. Um, and he just uh, just took off. It was ridiculous, his, his pace um, in the early going. Yeah, the rest of the field had pegged him back in I mean, once they got a little bit more used to the conditions. But uh, Yeah, by lap like, five, he was already 4.2 seconds clear of Davizioso in second. Uh, 4.2, how on brand. Um, but uh, like, like you said, it was, it was he, he just taken off. And like the wet conditions, of course, it's always who can, you know, measure that line between bravery and going a little bit too far over the line. Those are the guys that tend to flourish most in wet conditions, and Rins certainly did that. And even under intense pressure from Davizioso and Rossi in, in this race, Rins was still right up there, challenging for the victory at every turn and, and taking advantage of other people's mistakes. It, 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 this might have been Rins' most impressive performance on a MotoGP bike yet. And he's already had a handful of those in the second half of the season. Just a phenomenal, like, second half of the year from Rins, period. His third, second place in that time span as well. He's, he's doing a tremendous job on that Suzuki right now. Mm, he is. He's doing a, a terrific job. The, the conditions, though, were getting worse as the race uh, progressed. There was talk initially that it might become a flag-to-flag race with the conditions mm. drying out. But, of course, it then started to rain quite heavily before the MotoGP race started. And... <laughs> How do, how do we do this? It's very difficult for us to say because we weren't out there, Dre, but conditions were certainly sketchy um, in the race itself. Right. Um, and, you know, it's not meant to be easy. Wet races aren't meant to be easy. And, you know, the, the, the fact that riders are crashing shouldn't necessarily be an automatic, you know, determining factor that the race should be stopped. Um, but we were at a stage where three or four were going down within the space of a couple of laps. We saw Marquez go down. We saw Miller go down. Uh, Paul Espargaro, who was as high as second at one point, he went down, remounted, and carried on. Um, mm-hmm. Conditions were on the limit, shall we say? And that, yeah, I'm not I even mean, talking at the point of the red flag. I'm talking about three or four laps in. 
Yeah, I'd say, but it's like it, like it's as you say, it, it it was the track was drying out about half an hour before the race start. But Simon Simon Patterson pointed out on on for MCN on Twitter, it has started raining again about ten minutes before race start. So it, the flag to flag talk was immediately was out of the question um, due to the rain coming down again and hard as well. I mean, I'd say by about lap five or six, I think. I think that was borderline red flag conditions. I mean, I've been, I've been seeing examples like BSB at Silverstone last year, and hell, Silverstone beat like World MotoGP earlier this same season. Mm. Um, of course, not totally the Mother Nature's fault on that one for obvious reasons. But I think, from my experience of watching, and I've watched enough modern day Grand Prix where rain is a debatable factor. And for me, I think that was... I, I said on Twitter during the race, I said, call it. And I, and I said, call it after Marquez and Paula Spagaro both binned it, I think on lap eight or nine. I think I don't remember which one exactly it was. But in that time span, five guys had crashed within about three minutes. And I felt, okay, if a quarter of the field has gone down in the space of three laps, it's probably too dangerous. And that's probably more than just coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um... I think if, if 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 like half a dozen dudes have gone down that quick, I I can't help but but feel like the conditions were too dangerous. Um, of course, you never want to red flag a race, especially when it, no one's had a major accident. You don't like it's hard to be proactive in that sort of context because you don't know what's going to happen until it happens, and and that that always makes it more difficult to find where the line is on, yeah. on incidents like this. Because, it, it I is mean, tricky. There is... We've got, we've got examples from history, not just in two wheels, but in four wheels of mm. race directors being too cautious um, in wet Agreed. conditions. And some would say you can't be too cautious, but I think there's been, we've seen occasions in Formula One, for instance, with safety car starts. Um, mm-hmm. And we've seen other instances where conditions were good enough, but they were, they were being overly cautious and didn't want to um, send riders or drivers out in conditions that they felt were dangerous um but it was lap seven uh, where mark marquez went down from what was uh, third place he was running just behind <clears throat> just behind andre davizioso um in third the race continued um and then we got towards the second period where riders started to go down we saw maverick vinales go down from i think what was fourth position at the time he had a pretty mm-hmm. bad high side at the penultimate left-hander um bradley smith went down at that same corner now he would get back on his bike and push it into the pit lane, which again would become important later. Um, but let's talk briefly about that phase of the race, Dre, because this was the phase when Alex Rins was getting pulled back in um, yeah. by, by the rest of the field. He led, uh, as I say, as, as late as lap six, he was 4.2 seconds clear of Davizioso in second. Davizioso would steadily pull him back in um, to okay. the point where just before the red flag came out, he was right on top of Rins. But the guy who was making the real gains was Valentino Rossi, who, as we mentioned, had come from 16th on the grid. Um, and it was in those conditions, I guess, when riders like that have nothing to lose uh, and they can sense victory where you see some performances like that. Valentino Rossi, who on lap seven was 7.7 seconds behind the race leader, suddenly mm. starts coming at them at a second a lap. And by the time the red flag comes out at the end of lap 13, he's fighting for the lead. <laughs> it's it's crazy isn't it it's like i don't want to say oh people keep writing this man off because they don't like 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 rossi's rossi's fan base is a hive and they're never going to deviate from this but 
it is a nice reminder that at one point Valentino Rossi was the greatest thing to happen to MotoGP since sliced bread. And this was one of those biblical Rossi performances that he pulls out every once in a while. And this was this was another one of them. And it's one of those things that I think now in this phase of his career, you sit back and you just appreciate the what is, you know, Rossi in the twilight of his career. Um phenomenal. Utterly phenomenal. Just like again, just that riding style of his, which has always been super smooth, like super reliable. You, it, like you don't expect Rossi to ever crash in a MotoGP race. It's 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 always a surprise when it happens. And this was again another example of that in both senses of the both senses of the term, given the first and the second race we had here. But yeah, Valentino a second a lap quicker than everybody else on track. Again, like you say, Lewis, it might have just been the fact he felt like he had nothing to lose this year. Um, I wonder how much he knew he, he knew about Maverick going down. I don't, I don't know how mm. much of Ross. And, and it's about. also I, th- I was finding wet races as well. When you when you've got someone ahead of you that you can measure your pace against, um, it really yeah. does help. Obviously, I think that might have been part of the reason why Rins got pulled back in so quick because he, as the conditions were getting worse, he was still being a little bit circumspect, he's so the, not, he's, not he's knowing how hard big. to push. Yeah, he's the guinea pig because he's the exactly. first guy in. And obviously, Dobby can just look at Rins and just think, well, if Rins is taking that much risk, I can maybe go a little bit faster and, and get myself closer to him. Um, and Rossi, likewise, could obviously push a bit harder. But the, the pace they were all going was pretty clear in that Rins started going out at one, doing 141s and 142s. And then by the time the red flags came out, he was in the high 44s and low, 50, uh, low 45s. Similar pace for Dobby. Valentino Rossi started the race on doing 143s. And up until the last lap before the red flag came out, he was still doing 143s. Like his pace didn't drop off at all. Um, even though no. the conditions were getting worse, he was just keeping that consistent 143 pace. And as the others slowed down, in the, as the conditions got worse, Rossi just kept going. Um, just kept that consistency going, just kept it smooth. And before he knew it, he was fighting for the lead. And it, it brings upon one of the things that I think Race Direction was thinking of in that. I think this is a real consideration for race directors. We saw it in that BSB race you referenced at Silverstone last year. I mm. think they're always very mindful of the two-thirds distance um, in a race. Very uh, and, I, and I think that's perhaps what race direction were trying to do um, in the first part. Yeah, I think they were trying to get to two-thirds distance and then stop it, um, which I think was clear. I think the riders recognised that because you suddenly saw Dovi and Rossi both trying to... They were fighting each other at the final corner. I think they both wanted to lead over the line in case it got stopped. Um, Very important. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it did get stopped before the two-thirds distance had been reached, which meant we got a restart, um, which which brought several others back into play. It brought Bradley Smith into play, who had crashed a lap or two before the red flag, but by adhering to what we are now calling the Lucas Myas rule, he got himself back into the pit lane inside five minutes and was able to take the restart. Um, (laughs) The Lucas Myas rule. What a thing that is. Paul Espargo, (laughs) his teammate, had crashed out of second, as I mentioned earlier on, but he had remounted and got himself back up to eighth position um, before the mm-hmm. red flag came out. We still had 16 runners for the restart. And I have to say, I know it's not a common uh, opinion, but I thought the conditions for the second part of the race were fine. Um, yes. Personally, they they had, the rain had stopped um, to the point that they could get out there and race again. They certainly, conditions were certainly not as bad as they were when the red flags came out. Um, yeah, they were just about rideable. Um, but, Unfortunately for Rins, Dre, he couldn't quite make that same break in the second part of the race as he could in the first, which left Andre Davizioso um, to pull clear. And he's 
done so many of these in the last year and a half. In wet races, think of Mategi last year, um, where he was so good. That Ducati seems such a, a reliable bike uh, in wet mm-hmm. conditions. And Andrea Dovizioso, in the end, was too strong for them. Uh, Rins and Rossi would have a bit of a battle amongst themselves for second place. Um, but even once Rossi got into second place and had clear track, he could not pull Dovizioso back in. Um, and and given the way this season has gone, I know a lot of people, and I have to say I do include myself in that, would have liked to have seen Valentino Rossi take a winter round the year out. But even so, with that not happening, I think Andrea Dovizioso taking one more win just to underline his status as the heir apparent to Mark Marquez was a nice way for the year to end up. Of course. Uh, I don't I don't think Ducati's won at Valencia for quite some time as well. This has always been one of their bogey tracks for quite some time. I think. Yeah, 2008 was their last victory. I think, I think that does sound about right to me, that 2008 was the last time a Ducati won around here. Some guy called Casey. I wonder what happened to him. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's no way of, of saying it. That was This was an unexpected win for the Vizios. I mean, of course, the conditions play the hand that Ducati have always gone well when the rain comes down, their chassis always excelled in under wet conditions. And this was no surprise to Vizioso in that sense, you know, um, took a win that on paper, if it was going to be a wet race, they, they'd always tend to go well around, but Valencia is a track they've always struggled on. So, you know, a, a great, you know, morale boosting win, I think for Dovi and that side of the garage um, to close out the year and obviously start 2019 and whatnot. Um, a, a great win for him. And as you say, like, absolutely cementing his status as, you know, the number two rider on the planet, as painful as that is to say sometimes. Um, that, uh, yeah, but yeah, Dovi clearly, you know, touch of class once again to, uh, to to dominate the second half of that of that restarted race and just take off and was again in a class of his own there to win that by 2.7 seconds. Mm. Uh, and Alex Rins would end, end up with Valentino Rossi crashing out of that second part of the race whilst running second Alex Rins would come through to take second place now Alex Rins would end the year as a result of that fifth in the world championship um, and that was with three podiums in the last four races since the summer break, or since the Silverstone cancelled race Rins has gone fourth fourth sixth third fifth second second um, Stunning. which is extraordinary um, arguably I'm not even sure if it's arguable, Dre. The rider of the second half of the season? Probably. Um, I think you've got a very, very strong case you can make for that. Um, not to mention the, the simple fact that he's doing this on a Suzuki. Okay, yes, there's there's concessions involved, and they you know they do have a little bit of an unfair advantage over some of the other runners they're competing against. I'm not I'm not I'm not diminishing that by any stretch. Um, but. No matter which way you slice it, Alex Rins has been phenomenal since the break. Um, Suzuki have taken b- you know, big steps forward in terms of their development, and Rins has ridden out of his skin. It's like it's the sort of thing you're putting him in the future alien category because, like Mark Marquez, would have been happy with that second half of the season with that level of consistency. Maybe maybe the sixes and the fifths are a little bit down, but. Three podiums to close out the year in the last four rounds. The guy, you know, and you know, both times only being you know, a, a couple of seconds or even less from winning outright. That is spectacular from Alex Rins. That is unheard of for Suzuki since they came back into this championship. So, I mean, is there anyone in? Is there any camp in MotoGP right now feeding themselves a little bit more than Suzuki are at the moment, given how well they've closed out the year? And oh, some kid called Joanne Mir is joining next year. 
not a bad rider. Not not a bad stretch. rider at all. No, and looking at the manufacturer standing, Suzuki only ended the year what, 48 points behind Yamaha. That's that. That's actually, considering where they were last year, they finished within yeah. a couple of races of, of Yamaha's overall points total for the season. And actually, while you were talking there, Dre, I, I was totting it up. The only riders that I can see, and obviously it's pretty easy to work out that no other riders can go close. The only two riders, that have, out, the only two riders that have outscored Rins in the second half of the year or since Silverstone are Marquez and Davizioso. And it's not by yeah. as much as you'd think. Um, Marquez, really? since, since Mizano, which is obviously the first race after Silverstone, Marquez has scored 120 points. Dovi has scored 116. Rins has scored 103 so, which is, wow! Which is yeah, you know, the championship started there. He'd only be seventeen points off the leader. Um, He'd be within a race. Yeah, <laughs> so that that's the level Rins has been at. He's been his results are comparable to Marquez and Davizioso in the second half of the year, um, which which is extraordinary. That the level that he's gone up at because we forget at the start of the season, Dre. I know he had the great result um, at Argentina when he finished on the podium. He finished third in that one, but. We shouldn't forget that there were questions being asked of Rins. He'd crashed out of three of the first four Grand Prix. Um, because the yeah. only race he finished was the Argentine race. He then crashed again in Barcelona and again at the Saxon Ring. Um, so he was he was inconsistent at that stage and was I think he was behind Dinoni in the championship around this stage. But he's a rider who who we shouldn't forget is still only completing his second MotoGP season. Um, so he's still inexperienced by MotoGP standards. But there has been a noticeable step up in Rins to the point now where if Suzuki can make a step next year without concessions, of course, it's going to be difficult for them to do so. But I think they've seen enough now for this year to be fully confident that Alex Rins can spearhead that team long term. That's your team leader. And we did have legitimate question marks about Rins after the first four or five rounds where he had binned it from very good positions. Good positions where in leading groups, you know, in podium playing positions. And if he had cleaned himself up a little bit at the start of the year, you know, he probably would have given the Yamahas a real a real scare. Like, he could have been third outright, let alone third after the break. So, um, you know, obviously there'll be a little bit of regret there, but let's not forget we are talking about a class rookie. There's always going to be teaming problems. Um, it's, it's not a seamless transition. It is difficult to do this. It's not straightforward. Not everyone is going to be a Mark Marquez or a Maverick that are just going to, you know, fly out of the traps, get the best opportunities and, you know, hit the ground running. That's not the norm. That's actually quite freakish, you know, for for that to be a thing. Um, so, yeah, Rins has obviously taken his time in obviously getting used to this bike and getting used to GP in general. But since then, he has been phenomenal. There's no other word to describe it. Absolutely phenomenal. You know, title contending level speed in the second half of the year. Like, that is, no, by, by, your, by, your, by your stats, Lewis, by all accounts, that is title contender-level scoring. Mm. There, there, is, there is no other way of describing it. So, as, as you said, Suzuki are going to have a difficult off-season. They, like, they are going to lose their concessions again, and they're going back to where they were two years ago, where, you know, they genuinely had problems. Um you know, getting a good engine out of the box. And they've got they've got to have a lot of faith in what they've got right now because they're probably going to be locked into it once Sapan comes around. So it's going to be a difficult challenge for them. But if they get a strong opening package out of the box, look out. They're going to cause yeah, some problems for everyone. I really do because mm. they... I wouldn't necessarily say that much of their... Obviously, it's got to play a part in it, but I don't think much of their 
success this season is down to the concessions because it's not like they've developed their way to this position. They started the season competitive. Like, like I say, they were third in the second race of the year um, with Rins, and Yanone was on the podium in races three and four. So they did start this season well. Um, so that's, did. that's the chance for them next season is you know starting the year well and then basically giving themselves a platform to remain competitive through the year because, of course... It's not like Yamaha, Ducati, and Honda will be able to develop their way away from Suzuki because they'll be under this same limitation as well. So I've got mm. confidence in Suzuki that they, they've hopefully learned their lessons from 2017 um, and will go into 2019 fully competitive from the start. And they, they were fairly quick in the Valencia test as well, um, although they didn't have as much development parts to test. Um, as the other manufacturers. We'll talk about Yamaha a little bit more when we get to the Valencia test because, you know, neither of their riders finished in the end in Valencia, but that did itself uh, create a story because, of course, Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales were battling each other for the third spot in the World Championship uh, last mm. weekend. I have to say, after qualifying, the odds were heavily in Vinales' favour. Um, having Just qualified on pole with Rossi in 16th, although the weather forecast arguably negated all of that because Maverick's not your you know, prime example of a wet weather rider. Um, Indeed. He would then crash out. Whilst actually running pretty close to Valentino Rossi, it gets forgotten. But whilst Rossi was coming out a second a lap uh, towards those leading two, he was towing Vinales along with him. Um, so Vinales had quite cannily, when Rossi overtook him, had latched himself onto the back of his teammate and followed him towards the front until he high-sided just as the conditions uh, got quite bad. Um, yeah. Rossi ends up finishing ahead of Vinales in the championship, Dre. He ends up finishing ahead of him by just five points. Um, that feels to me like it flatters Vinales more than it flatters Rossi. Would you agree? A little. I think it does. I mean, I'm I'm trying to work out where this was won or lost because it's like, let's be real here. We've given Rossi a lot of the credit for dragging that Yamaha into play and finishing third overall. The you know, the best of the rest behind Marquez and Dovi is genuinely a great achievement. You know, given given you know Yamaha's you know well documented struggles this season, and moment when Yamaha has succeeded, you know Rossi most of the time has been the guy that has taken most of the plaudits for it, and yet he only finishes the year five points ahead of his teammate. Now, don't get me wrong, a lot of Mavericks' points came towards the end of the year. Obviously, finishing well in Thailand on the podium there. Yeah, he obviously, pulled, with, he pulled Philipp- twenty-eight points out of Rossi in the Phillip Island and Sepang races alone. Yeah, and you know, a Sepang well, race where Rossi was leading when he crashed. Yeah, and this is the problem. Like Rossi made critical errors towards the end of the year, something that's uncharacteristic of him. Um, you know, that is not something Valentino is known for. He's known for bulletproof consistency, not making many mistakes, and getting the best out of what he's been given. And you know, once again, um, you know, um, we're well, once again like he's made a couple of errors that have come back to bite him because now his you know his arguably rider of the year season doesn't look quite as good now he's only beaten maverick by five and once again when when the when the yamaha did perform you know maverick was the guy that had a bigger upside you know it was you know it was it was one of those things where it's like Ooh, it, it's, it's hard to describe it because, again, I've said it before. I've always said this. Maverick has the higher ceiling while Valentino has the higher floor. And the problem is, is that Yamaha has been down more than up most of the time this year. Um, so, 
it's hard. It's hard. It's it's hard to fully grasp this one because there's there's two different ways to look at it. You could say Rossi did the bulk of the work this year, but at the same time, you can also say, well, Maverick never really went away. And when the opportunities came for Maverick, he took full advantage of them. Um, yeah, he did, and and. Yeah, I, I think it's just about right that Rossi outscores Vinyas. And, and then the next question I was going to ask as well is, in terms of the championship as a whole, um, when we look back on the, the full season, the full 19 rounds, we saw on the FIM Gala on the Sunday night, Mark Marquez, Andrea Di Vizioso and Valentino Rossi as your, your three podium finishes for the season, getting the medals um, in Valencia. That kind of seems about right, doesn't it, Dre, for the way the season's gone? I mean, obviously, the likes of Rins can make a genuine case for the way he ended the mm. season. Carl Crutchlow's had his moments. Lorenzo, mm-hmm. before getting injured, had his moments. But yeah. it feels to me like Marquez, Davizioso, Rossi have been the best three riders of the year in that order. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean... Let's be frank, the Suzuki was probably a stronger bike than the Yamaha for a lot of the second half of the season. You know, it was like you were, you were, you were just, we were more raising eyebrows, often shocking form, like especially places like Aragon, where Rossi had to pull out a ridiculous ride just to get into the top eight. And, and at the same time, Alex Rins was out there challenging for victories. It, it's not the best of looks, but pound for pound, I mean, I'm sure we'll review this later in the year and in the Bike Live Awards when they come up in probably in a couple of weeks' time. The way I look at it, I think you're probably right. I think Marquez, Marquez was absolutely phenomenal this year yet again, just dominated the championship, just didn't give any of his rivals any room to breathe. Dovi, clear best of the rest guy, still consistent, proved that, you know, Last year wasn't a fluke. This 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 is this is who he is now. This is a guy that can win five rounds a year, and if the right chips fall his way, can challenge for a title. Valentino Rossi on the Yamaha, a Yamaha that ranged anywhere from mediocre to dumpster fire, depending on what track they were going round. And you know, had like he was the standout guy. He had the standout performances on a Yamaha that we all acknowledged was terrible. Remember that was a bike that they had to apologize for. I've never seen that before in GP where a team's big bosses is coming down apologizing to its riders for un- for letting them down. I, I I still think that's one of the most surreal things of this season that not that doesn't get spoken about enough. A big team boss said, "Sorry, we let you down, Valentino," which, you know, you can, you can make jokes about Rossi's influence in MotoGP and that statement till the cows come home. But I think you're right. I think those three were probably the three best riders of this season. And I think Alex Rins, as you say, I think would be a very close fourth in that discussion. He would. He would. And as far as the Valencia race goes, we'll return to that for a moment. All you KTM fans, uh, and I include Ryan King in this at the front of the queue, um, waiting for us to discuss the first of your three success stories from Sunday. Well, here comes the first of them. Uh, a first ever podium uh, for KTM in MotoGP with Paul Espargaro. And obviously, a lot of people will look at it at a glance, perhaps those that haven't seen the race, and go, well, it was a wet race. So you get a few quirky results in wet races. But let's not underplay this, Drake. They qualified sixth in a dry Q2. Paul Espargaro, the first part of the race before crashing at the same point that half a dozen others crashed was fighting for second place and that third place in the second half of the race there was only one rider that crashed out ahead of them 
So at the very worst, it would have been a four. This was a result that Paul Spargo and KTM fully merited. You might have just seen, like, like I, you know, I was going to say it's the ride of the year. The scary wasn't thing is that might, <laughs> like that was that probably wasn't even the ride of the weekend. And, and Paul Spargo was absolutely phenomenal. It wasn't even I the mean, best ride on a KTM that day. <laughs> That's just not fair. It's not fair. Um... What a weekend for anyone riding in orange, not named Mark. Um, We've been waiting but, uh, for something, something tangible to measure KTM's progress by. And yes, obviously on drag conditions over the course of the year, they've not been threatening podiums. But this is this is a key result, isn't it, for the, the development of that team to basically put that trophy on, on a pedestal and say, we are making progress. Yeah, that... that... It's funny because Bradley Smith was in eighth after the restart, and that would have been KTM's best ever finish. And that was in from the back Grand of the grid, and that was from the back of the field. Like Bradley was insane in his own right. Paul Spagaro beat him by twenty six seconds, and um, Paul, like, what sums it up better for me than anything else is that the first the first half of that race, he was riding side by side with Mark Marquez. The best rider of this generation and <laughs> the drive he's, he's, that ktm was getting out of corners though yeah the like that corner exit speed that that traction coming off coming off the corners like that in wet conditions sensational he they were he, he was out dragging bikes down the home straight a ktm's never been the fastest bike in a straight line but the like that corner exit speed and that you know, mid-gear acceleration onto the main straight and then on these medium limp straights. And this is, this is Valencia. We all know it's a tight, twisty, you know, technical circuit in that sense. But what a performance. A stunning, stunning performance from Paul Desmarga over there. And we, we forget, this is his first ever top flight podium. He's had fourth places many a time in tech, I mean, back in his tech three days. But this was his first ever Grand Prix podium. He burst into tears afterwards, talking to Simon Crayfire about it after the race itself. And you could see how much it meant to them. And what a, what a weekend for KTM in general. That was the cherry on top. I don't think any of them in their wildest dreams could have expected. I mean, okay, Miguel Oliveira has been phenomenal. Right, and, you know, Chad Onsu, yeah, of course, of course, shocking win, but... Darren Binder's contended for race wins this season, so it's not like it's not like KTM's had a terrible season in Moto Three and they've not had anywhere near enough chances. They have had opportunities. Yeah, they challenged this, for both championships. Yeah, this 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 is ridiculous. <laughs> this like how do you smash your best ever finish by six positions? Like, a, a, a podium that is that was unthinkable for KTM going into this weekend. It is one of the, it's probably the biggest shock of MotoGP this season. And this is a, and that's funny, we mentioned this before. It's like KTM have probably gone a little bit backwards compared to last year in the grand scheme of things. So this is a team that was knocking on top 10s on a regular basis the year prior. It's funny because I, 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 I liken it to their Moto2 team where it's like when you consider where that team is in its development, I don't think it's necessarily had a bad season, but I just think we were, I think we were given every reason to expect more from them. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we might have jumped the gun a little bit. Yeah, a, a team in year two um, as a manufacturer in GP up against the level of competition it's up against. Um, mm. I think to be getting the occasional top 10 result, I think that's pretty decent. But of course, because it they is. did that in year one, we expected them to be, you know, maybe... To build on that. Yeah, to yeah. build on that and maybe be top six. I think they just, it kind of hit them this year, just how steep a hill they have to climb 
in MotoGP Indeed. to get to the front. Um, but yeah, to get a podium um, at the end of their second year, I mean, a pretty have been at it for four years and they still haven't got a rostrum um, in, in MotoGP. Uh, so that just tells you the level that KTM reached last weekend. An incredible, incredible result. And the, the, when Paul Spargo was overtaking Mark Marquez early in the first part of the race, I, like a few people, were thinking, surely KTM aren't going to sweep the day, are they? Surely they're not going to win all three. Um, with the same team winning all three races, Red Bull KTM, it would have been an extraordinary story. Um, if, if, if that had happened, Austria's getting a national holiday. Fuck yeah. it. Like, what a day it would have been for them um, if they'd yeah. done it. Um, two other riders I want to mention, though, before we um, we move on to Moto3. Um, the riders who finished fourth and fifth. Starting the rider in fourth, though, Dre. Um, mm. And this is where he'll uh, break out his best goalie looking chain impression. Uh, but Bikaili Piro um, finishing whoop, in fourth whoop. position. Uh, there it is. Um, which in itself is his career best. Um, MotoGP result uh, in fourth position at the same stage where he took his one and only Grand Prix win um, mm. and still to this day the most emotional Grand Prix win I have ever been involved in watching um, back in 2011 yeah. when just two weeks after Grassini lost Marco Simoncelli the Caleb Pura went to Valencia and won for the same team in the Moto2 race um, and Fausto Grassini was in tears on the pit wall I'll never forget that race um, oh, God. but Piro yeah. seven years on finishes fourth in a MotoGP race um, for the Ducati team and it's a handy result. I mean, this guy, certainly within Ducati, no one is undervaluing and underplaying the role this guy plays in the success of this team. But it's nice for him to have a result on a Sunday to actually show for it because this guy is an invaluable part of the Ducati program. Priceless. I am like it's it's something that I don't like. I mean, we're I mean, Lewis, we're both two and four wheel fans, and like I don't, like, we don't talk about you know test guys or reserve guys quite so much in Formula One compared to GP. In Formula One, I don't, I think that role has, I think, lost a lot of its prestige, and I, I it's think I want to say anymore. like, yeah, it's like they just don't test like they, they, they do anymore because obviously testing's changed the dynamics. A lot of it is, is, is a lot of it is more based on demo runs and simulators and PR work. I mean, John Eric Verne was at Ferrari a couple of years ago, and all he really did was look good in a blazer, um, more, more than anything else. But in in GP circles, it is such an integral part of of, of development, of, of success, and you know the 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 elements that you know make them who they are. And I think the flagship testing guy that we know from GP in the last decade has been McKaylee Pirro. And, well, you know, know was... they can call on him in any scenario at any time of a season and then he'll jump on their bike and do a good job. Yeah, it's, it's, that, is an in, that, yeah, that, that is an that invaluable thing to have. I, I wanted to say it was a tool, but McKaylee Pirro is so much more valuable than that. I mean, I wouldn't be doing him justice to call him a mere tool. He is a phenomenal rider. Um, um, in the context of his job and what he does. He is the best in the world at what he does. As a testing guy, as a development guy, as an ambassador for the brand, as a substitute rider. And we forget multiple-time Italian superbike champion. He's a quality bike rider in his own right. We often forget this. He could easily, I think, be in a MotoGP field full-time with the right level of backing and, and, and development. If he had the same level of resources and backing and development, like... Andrea Davizioso and Jorge Lorenzo and many of their you know ace caliber riders they've had in the last half decade like you know with Nicky Hayden you know you know it, it, it goes on Valentino Rossi obviously it goes on and on the quality riders they've had over the years. McKaylee I think could easily be in that old. I mean 
that was a sensational ride from Mikaeli Piro, given the circumstances, given everything that happened around him. He is such an important part of, of Ducati as a racing brand. You know, I mean, this, this time last week, he was going around doing V4 Panigale demo runs for the Superbike team. He, that's just what Mikaeli Piro does. He's he, he eats, you know, sleeps and breathes motorcycle racing and bleeds Ducati. It is as simple as that. You know, you like that is the sort of guy you wish you had in in your business, in your team, in your development anywhere. Like he is a he is a phenomenal asset to the team, um, a true a true team player, and um, I cannot commend him enough because that was another fantastic result for Ducati um, you know, to, to, to salvage a fourth place on top of the Dovi victory. Um, you know, Lorenzo just didn't have a good time out there. But Michele Piro, only eight seconds off the win, only a second off a podium. Um, again, out of nowhere. Again, a guy that, you know, is short notice, is not getting the same amount of backing the other two guys are. Brilliant, brilliant job from Michele Piro once again. Brilliant job. And uh, and finally, uh, in our MotoGP roundup, we, we cannot go through a MotoGP roundup of last weekend without mentioning Danny Pedrosa, who, who finished fifth, um, which was his equal best result of the season. And obviously he now bows out of MotoGP as a racer to go off and test for uh, KTM next year. Um, mm. And in many ways, obviously we would have loved the fairy tale finish of Danny Pedrosa going out with a rostrum or dare we say a win, but the way his season has gone, it was never really on because he's never really been showing that kind of performance, which I think is part of the reason why he's decided he doesn't want to do it anymore, um, which is fair enough. Um, but the response he got through the the race weekend, Ray, obviously he was inducted yeah. as a MotoGP legend on the Thursday. The scenes on the slowdown lap after the race, the, there was an image that evoked memories of me of 2006 where Valentino Rossi pulls up alongside Danny Pedrosa and there is a there is a long period of Rossi you know, putting his hand on Pedrosa's arm and shaking his hand and, and clearly mm, just absolutely. there's no question over the years how much respect Valentino Rossi in particular has for Danny Pedrosa um, and the re- re- reaction and reception he got from the Repsol Honda team not just when he returned to the garage but also the surprise farewell party they threw for him afterwards Obviously, would have liked to see Danny Pedrosa bow out with a, a Hollywood finish, but it was clear as if it really needed clearing up just how highly valued he was, um, not just through his team, but just by his sports last weekend. Indeed. I mean, let's not forget that we are talking about a five foot two, seven stone little little Spanish man who was able to rock a 160 kilo 260 horsepower 220 mile an hour prototype um like and 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 only a handful of riders have ever done it better than him and there's so much you can say about danny that's already been said you know the 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 model of consistency the brilliant ambassador for honda for the last two decades nearly three times world champion Three-time world champion in one two fives and two fifties, and three-time was... MotoGP championship runner-up. Yeah, seven times in the top three of the championship, and the only reason he didn't win one was because we've had the golden era of MotoGP and biking talent in general. We've had, I'd say, maybe six or seven guys that will end their careers as Hall of Famers in the last. 15 years, Valentino Rossi, Mark Marquez, Casey Stoner, 
you know, um, Jorge Lorenzo, maybe Andrea Davizioso by the time it's all said and done with him. He's, he's, he's a bit of a late bloomer in terms of career statistics and whatnot, but he's now riding as well as anyone in the world. You know, we've had a good half dozen top 12 riders to probably ever walk this earth. And Pedrosa was shoulder to shoulder, if not better than a lot of these guys at periods of time in their careers. Um he is a truly phenomenal sporting marvel. And I don't say that about very people, but like there will be books written on how on earth he was able to do what he did. And and like I still can't quite believe I mean like you look at Valentino Rossi, he's a six footer, he's a big guy, he's a big athlete, obviously still phenomenally fit and strong at nearly forty years of years of age. Pedros is almost half the man's size, for fuck's sake. And he's still... And, he, and this is a guy that has got a resume that would match many, many a motorcycle out there that is in the Hall of Fame right now or is, you know, possible future Hall of Famers that are out there. You know, I think sixth on the all-time wins list. Um, the accolades go on and on and on. I'm not even, I've barely even mentioned one of the most brilliant ambassadors for bike racing in the last 20 years. Um, I've never, ever had a bad word to say against Sandy Pedrosa, the person. And I think a lot of people would back that up in the paddock. Mm. Um, I, I saw a, a wonderful tribute from Ben Spees on his Instagram page after that final race in Valencia where he talked about his first day on the job for Yamaha. And Danny Pedrosa sat down with him he asked to sit down next to him that day and just had a conversation about bike racing about world deeper bikes and basically made ben feel welcome and at home that is a potential title rival right there and then he would just join the yamaha for world superbike title it was going to be jorge lorenzo's teammate right there and then and pedrosa just treats him like another guy and i think the line that summed it up best at the end of his tribute was thank you dovi for being you so thank you danny i should say for being you and he is a phenomenal bike rider, a phenomenal ambassador for Honda, for bike racing, for MotoGP, you name it. And it it, it, it won't be quite the same without him. And obviously there's a lot to be excited about with Jorge Lorenzo coming in this year. And obviously like it's, it's a real dream team at Honda. There's no, there's no shake in that. I mean, three, 12 world titles between them. But like Honda doesn't get to this point if it wasn't for Danny Pedrosa. He's priceless to Honda as a, as, as a GP team over the last 15 years. There's there's no doubt about it. There are very, very few. Very, very few. You can probably count them on, on one hand as in riders in the last 20 years that have been more influential and more important, not only to MotoGP, but for the rise of Spain in, in GP racing in general as well than Danny Pedrosa. So, uh I would like to say arigato, Sam and I. It's been an honour and a privilege to watch you race. Absolutely. Uh, not a lot I can add to that. I agree with every word. Uh, as, as Cam says in the chat, for a while of his prime, he was on probably the worst Honda since they tried oval pistons. It, it's a good point, that, because, of course, Danny Pedrosa um, essentially became the, the Repsol Honda team leader straight after Nicky Hayden won the title in 2006. Pedrosa yeah. was then in his second season and took over leadership of that team as Hayden's title offence didn't go all that well. And Honda were struggling to a to a point um, through that yeah. 07, 08, 09 period where, of course, we saw Stoner win his title and then Valentino Rossi um, won his, what were his last two titles to this point in 08 and 09 um, before Lorenzo mm. won in 10. Honda would then 
get themselves back on track again in in 2011 of course that was at that point they had stoner back on board and stoner was the one that would reap the rewards of that so he's been in many ways the right rider in the right place but at just the wrong time right throughout his career the the, the stars have just never quite aligned for danny pedroza um to mm. the career and, and you know he's he's not won a title but i don't think that's necessarily his fault he's He's put himself in position a few times and got injured at the worst possible moments. Um, mm-hmm. And equally, as Dre's already articulated, he has been in the same era. Um, until Andy Murray had won a Grand Slam title, I always termed Danny Pedroza as the Andy Murray of, of MotoGP in that in his own right, in any other era, he'd probably be you know a five-times a five world champion on his own in the Premier class. But he happened to be in the same era as, a, as Rossi, Lorenzo, Stoner, and then Marquez. Um, and ultimately, that's that's denied him the, the ultimate prize in MotoGP but but as Dre said um, thank you to Danny Pedroza for being a, a shining example of what MotoGP riders should be for the best part of 20 years um, before we round this up then and move on to Moto3 the result from last weekend Andrea Vizioso the winner um, for the fourth time this year ahead of Alex Rins and Paul Espargaro and Michele Piro fourth ahead of Danny Pedroza and Takaki Nakagami who was the top rookie in sixth Joan Zarco, 7th on his final ride for Tech 3. Um, Bradley Smith on his final ride on a KTM, 8th. Stefan Bridal on the LCR Honda in place of Kyle Crutchlow, 9th. And Hafish Sayerin, um, his last ride on a Yamaha for now, although he does stay with the Tech 3 team, in 10th. Uh, Scott Redding finished 11th, and um, in true Scott Redding fashion, rounded out his MotoGP career by riding the slowdown lap in his boxers. Because Scott yes. Redding. Oh. Uh, what a guy! In the pouring rain. <laughs> Um, what a guy <laughs> Scott Redding ladies and gentlemen and, and actually we should mention him as well actually Dre because of course he's, mm. he's bowing out of MotoGP for now at least um, yeah. and he's a guy who should in some um, aspects maybe have been a Moto2 champion certainly should have taken that to the wire mm. for that injury at Phillip yeah. Island um, absolutely in, whatever it was 2013 um, until six days ago was the youngest ever Grand Prix winner of all time um, right and above all else at the moment Dre I think has made a, a bit of a name for himself in the last year as one of the MotoGP paddocks great characters and the personality Scott Redding I think MotoGP is going to miss I have to agree and I can't believe I'm because I'm not going to pretend like I've ever been the biggest Scott Redding fan over the years because I think he's, I think he's put his foot in his mouth more often than not. However, I will always have a level of respect for people that are unafraid to speak their minds and, and, uh, and people that, and yeah, exactly, just to be them. And that I think is the authentic Scott Redding. Like you, you know exactly what you get with Scott, and he reminds me a lot of me. And he often carries his heart on his sleeve and often says the wrong things and. Dear God, have I done that on this show over the last over the last three or four years? Um, I am I am hardly an angel, lady. First guy to tell you, but there is something unequivocally strong and likable about someone that, in let's be real here, it's sport. It's often PR heavy. It's controlled. It's very environmental. It's very much often wrapped in in, in like in bubble wrap and put in a bubble. Media, you always. Yeah. Yeah, you you've always you're going to get the real Scott Redding every single time you enter. And who out here goes does purple dreadlocks going into a Grand Prix week? Yeah. Who 
goes and rides his final ever laps of a MotoGP bike in his boxes. Like, Redin, Redin is not like most people, and that's why I kind of like him, because he's just so different, and he's just so out there, and he just does things differently, and I will always, like, I, like that's something I've always tried to go by myself, by just doing things a bit differently, and he's, yeah, you're absolutely right, I think he has turned into one of the real great entertainers in, in GP racing, in terms of you know, just getting himself out there in a sport that often, you know, lacks characters. I mean, we, we let's be real here. We had a lot of guys in GP racing that didn't move the needle after Valentino kind of faded a little bit. Lorenzo, Pedrosa, you know, Stoner. They're all great guys and they're all, you know, you know, good people in their own rights, but they weren't going to be needle. <laughs> that guy's phenomenal. That guy's funny. Like, Redding's a different sort of guy, and that is that's awesome, and that we need that in bike racing. I think more than anything else. Um, so I'm going to miss Scotty. I really am. He's a, and if anyone follows his Instagram, he is genuinely hilarious a lot of the time. He just doesn't give a shit half the time, and that's and that's uh, that's a great trait to have in someone. That's the sort of person you want to go and have a beer with more than anything else. So a salute to you, Scott Redding, and a, a guy that for me probably deserved better opportunities than he got in, in bike racing. I mean, the, I think the Pramac deal when losing out to the to, 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 to Nilo Petrucci was probably what did him in mm. more than anything else. Because before then, he had gotten a production Honda, a Mark VDS Honda that was always going to struggle. I mean, a bike that we all know, as we've seen, is is a hard thing to master as a rookie. Um, he's not the first rider to sink on an Aprilia, and he probably won't be the last. No, so again, Redding, I think is I think is genuinely a little bit better than I think some of his numbers and his team scenarios probably suggest in the five years he's been in bike racing. So uh, that's and that's kind of a shame because again, I, I genuinely think he's he, he's a bit better than that, and I think in the right team and right scenario, I think he would have flourished. It's just a shame it's not quite worked out for him. But as said, still a, phen- a, a phenomenal bike rider, and I can't wait to see him in the Superbikes next year. I think that's going to be an awesome addition to the series. You know, a 25-year-old, hungry, motivated Scott Redding, I think, could could captivate a lot of people. And he'll, he'll generate a lot of MotoGP press from his, from his time out there over in BSB. So I look forward to seeing what he can do there. But there will be, a, again, a, a definite hole in the paddock where his garage was because he was always good for yeah, can't wait to see how he goes in in BSB. As as Dre mentioned, MotoGP um, in, in its own way will miss him. Although, as Cam quite rightly says on the chat, Mark's shoulder won't, um, which is a very very <laughs> good point. Um, Reading was eleventh last weekend ahead of Jorge Lorenzo, uh, who of course was riding uh, less than one hundred percent, finished twelfth. Valentino Rossi, who picked his Hammer Yamaha out of the gravel trap and finished thirteenth. Carol Abraham in 14th, and a shout-out to Jordi Torres, the Spanish LBC hey! first MotoGP Championship point um, in God, 15th position. Um, so well done uh, to him. Um, there were no fewer than 10 riders who failed to finish um, last weekend's Grand Prix, one of which didn't start it. That was Xavier Simeon, uh, who injured himself in pre-practice. Uh, Bautista, Vinales, Petrucci, Marquez, Yanone, Alessia Spargaro, Miller, Morbidelli, and Luti all crashed out. Um, of the Grand Prix. Final championship standings then at the end of this MotoGP season. Mark Marquez, 321. Uh, he wins the championship at the end by 76 points from Andrea Dovizioso, uh, who finishes the season on 245, which I think is only about 16 points shy of what he finished on last year. 
um, oh, for the year. Christ. So Dovizioso himself has had a pretty comparable season to last year on in terms of his points. Uh, Valentino Rossi finishes the year third on 198. Um, that's, that's five points clear of Vinales, but as a measure of how far Yamaha have got to catch up, 123 points behind the eventual champion uh, for Valentino mm-hmm. Rossi. Alex Rins fifth overall on 169. Jean Zarco sixth on 158. Uh, he wins the independence honor for the year. Cal Crutchlow, of course, probably would have won that had he not broken his ankle in Phillip Island. He ends the year seventh. Mm-hmm. Danilo Petrucci, eighth. Jorge Lorenzo, ninth, although, of course, until Valencia, he hadn't scored a single point in the second half of the year due to injury and other factors. Uh, Andrea Noni rounds out the top 10 on 133. Danny Pedroza's final year ends 11th overall, ahead of Alvaro Bautista, who, of course, is now going to World Superbikes. Jack Miller was 13th. Paul Spargo leapt all the way up to 14th. Um, with his uh, 16 points in the final race. He um, went all the way from 35 to 51, up to 14th. Franco Morbidelli finishes the year in 15th and the top rookie for the season. Um, he would have been sitting slightly nervously when that red flag came out, which of course half his siren went into that restarted race um, in Valencia, knowing that a sixth-place finish or better would have seen him take the rookie of the year honour from Morbidelli. Right. In the end, he didn't quite manage it. Um, he finished... Uh, in 10th overall, so he missed out by four points, but he still finished the year a very creditable 16th overall, ahead of Alicia Spargo, Bradley Smith, Tito Rabat, Takaki Nakagami, Scott Redding, Nikili Piro, Carol Abraham, Stefan Bradle, Mika Kallio, Katsuki Akasuga, Xavier Simeon, and Jordi Torres round out your 28-point scorers um, for this MotoGP season. Honda won the Constructors' Championship in Malaysia. They finished 40 points clear of Ducati. Repsol Honda clinched the team's championship in Valencia last weekend. Uh, they finished, in the end, 46 points clear of Ducati in the end, who snatched second place by one point from Movistar Yamaha. Um, and as I mentioned already, the independence honour went to Joan Zarco, and the top rookie was Franco Morbidelli. Moto3, um, and we've not left ourselves much time to talk about the small classes, but we cannot um, let this Moto3 race go without covering the the history that was made, Dre. Um, now, as, as Dre mentioned on Twitter last weekend, and as he um, mentioned on Motorsport 101 this week, I did kind of flag up how good I thought Chan on Chu was last week he on did. this show. But Dre, I don't think anyone in their wildest dreams, least of all Chan on Chu, quite expected that. Well played, Lewis. Well played. You can have your moments. Um, holy shit. It. Um, holy shit. Um, what, what just happened? Um, uh, like, I'm still quite trying to wrap my head and figure out just what happened here. Um, yeah, it's Lewis the Prophet in the <laughs> chat is probably the best way of describing this. All hail Prophet Lewis. Um, Chanon Su, you know, it is something to be said that sometimes the best guy in a wet race is the guy that, that makes the least amount of mistakes. And that was the story of this one. And Chanon Su was just rock solid. I mean, this wasn't a fluke. He qualified fourth on the grid. And everyone was like, everyone was like, uh oh. <laughs> like, this kid looked phenomenal right from the start. And again, there's, let's not forget the story of this race. I mean, the first two thirds were dominated by Tony Arbolino, who 
It, it had qualified on pole position and a stunning wet qualifying lap to take that pole. Second pole of the year for Arbelino. You know, would take you know taking the taking the early hole shot and had several seconds in hand, but pushed too hard and binned it. And that left the door open for Chan Onsu, who was running a clear second ahead of both first, second, and third in the championship. You know, with Martin and DG Antonio down the road and Bezeki, who had already crashed once despite showing great speed. So in these sorts of wet races, speed isn't necessarily everything. And sometimes just being consistent and keeping a cool head, I think more than anything else, can get it. And they don't get me wrong, can have a couple of big near misses. Including one that the fans was like, well, I, I swear to God, I think my heart skipped a beat. On, I think, on, I think like, oh, no! made the noise. Oh! Um, <laughs> as, he, as he suddenly uh, had a, like a mini high side on the way out of turn six. Um, right, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't blame him, to be fair. <laughs> no, I think we all did. Uh, I was like, just just hold it together, Chan. What, this will be an incredible story. 15 years and 115 days old. Um, right. Which, uh, and just to just go back over what Dre said on What's What I Want this week, um, and he mentioned earlier in the show, he was born in 2003, if you hadn't figured that out by how old he is, mm-hmm. and his motorsport hero is Mark Marquez, um, which which makes us all feel geriatric. We are old! <laughs> yeah, we are, we old. are so old! Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I myself, I'm 13 years older than him, um, which, <laughs> which, which, is, uh, which is terrifying. Um, oh, but, my God. But what an, an extraordinary, extraordinary race. He rode like a veteran. Um, he really and did. I'll tell you what's fascinating, by the way, on a complete tangent. Uh, the CEV, um, Moto3 Junior World Championship, are at Valencia this weekend for their final round, of which Channel 2 competes in. Under pressure to win right. again, isn't he? <laughs> he's already beaten the best in the world, and now he's up against the best junior class in the world in the same same circuit. So let's see if he can do it again this weekend. Um, but right. but an incredible ride, a ride that if any if Jorge Martin had done that, we'd have been waxing lyrical about how good it was for a rider oh, who is less than fifteen and a half um, to do that. It is remarkable. He breaks Scott Redding's record as the youngest ever Grand Prix winner. It's a record that's unlikely to be broken because, because the only chance you have of even troubling that record is if you have won the CEV Junior World Championship or the Red Bull Rookies Cup, which is why Chan Onshu was eligible to race last weekend. And right. he just seemed so calm, didn't he? He was the calmest guy seemingly wearing Red Bull KTM IO team kit because his twin brother Dennis and his team boss Aki IO were having kittens on the pit wall. <laughs> Look, you could see every time he was coming past the home straight, you could see Aki IO and his brother Dennis, who may I add, it's actually against the law for him to be on the pit wall because he's under the he's actually he's underage. He's he's technically a child at fifteen and one hundred fifteen days old. Funny that, isn't it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, the three hours are very important. If you, uh, you ask any set of twins this, they will tell you for free. The few minutes older, yeah, they, it matters to them. But yeah, exactly. I, I, but to, to quote what you said on Twitter, you said, "What is Turkish for slow the fuck down, Chan?" <laughs> Right. Has anyone has anybody got? Any- because yeah, every time it was coming past the pit wall, they were, they were giving him like the like like the arm waves. Slow down, slow down. You're eight you seconds ahead of them. You're eight seconds in front. Don't don't take the piss. And he very nearly did. Like Jesus, like I said, he had he had two massive near misses. One halfway through. And the other one on the final lap, where I think everyone in the paddock held its collective breath, like "Oh no!" And then, oh, we, oh, we almost had like ultimate commentary curse moment, like the worst one since probably Marco Simoncelli at a ref in eleven. 
Sorry, Toby, maybe. But um, it's, it's, it was heartrending. But uh, what a sensational performance that was. And again, like 15 years old, maturity and, and just level-headedness way beyond his years. Um, like I said, sensational performance. And it says a lot when Mark Marquez and Johans in Park Ferme and coming into the paddock to congratulate the young man on what was a sensational victory and as i mentioned on on the pre-show before before we actually started recording like what did what does keenan safogadu feed these dudes Mm. in turkey i I, does he get salt bay involved in this like because (laughs) like you look at the odyssey twins you look at top prak rasgatioglu who again is another phenomenal talent in his own right and is a guy that's going to be you know probably a you know a, a Kawasaki factory superbike rider in the next two years or less. I and you got those two guys like Keenan is literally inspiring a nation to go bike racing. And look at the results! Yeah. It How is long before we back at Istanbul Park? <laughs> yes, please. Yes, yeah. please. I'm here for all of this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's an extraordinary production line that the Keenan Safoglu essentially essentially on his own is created. Because who else do we credit for it? He's the only guy. He's been flying the flag on his own. For so many years, and yeah, the the Kin the Channel Chu in a tweet uh, earlier this week actually mentioned him by name as one of the people he wanted to thank for his for his success last weekend. So mm. even even he's making that point that uh, Keenan has been an inspiration for him. And I mean, we were already talking in previous shows about how wide open we thought Moto Three was next year, and we didn't even mention Channel Chu, um, who's now going to go into next next season as the most recent Grand Prix winner. He's going to go in as undefeated in Grand Prix racing, um, <laughs> which, which is fantastic. Um, Outstanding. Uh, I love before it. Before he goes to uh, to Qatar next year for the first race of next season. Um, I mean, he's set the bar pretty high for his uh, for himself, hasn't he? To, to win on... It, it, it is almost unheard of in Grand Prix racing for someone to win on their debut. Um, um, like, he's, got full, he's got full Troy Bayliss up in yeah, here. Like, it, it's, it's, it, is, it is. We cannot underplay how impressive that was. Um, Stunning. To you last Stunning. Um, to win by four seconds, and as we've already mentioned, he's got a twin brother as well, who's who's very very good in his own right. <laughs> Channon Chu won the Red Bull Rookies Cup this season. That was how he was able to race in Valencia. His twin brother Dennis was the runner up to him um, in the oh, Red Bull Rookies God. Cup. So, so he'll probably win that next season, and then win in Valencia next year. Um, so uh, so yeah, they are coming. I mean, I've, I've mentioned them a few times on this show. Whenever I've been mentioning Turkish riders, I've always mentioned these on Chu twins about how. They are they yeah, are yeah. going to be emerging yeah, in the future, but 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 hell, no, I don't think anyone was expecting them to win on debut like Chad on two did last weekend. So one of the rides of the year, one of the best things I've ever seen on a motorbike, and I've been watching this sport for twenty years. Incredible, simply simply stunning. What a phenomenal from, ride that was. Chan on two, um, remarkable. Congratulations to to become like I say the youngest ever Grand Prix winner in his, the history of this sport. Remarkable. Um, there were other stories in in this Moto3 race, although they did kind of pale into insignificance. But, of course, there was a battle for the runner-up spot in the championship. Mm. Marco Bezzecchi looked on course for it because I think he was running well, he was running third, wasn't he? He was the next guy behind um, Arbolino and Onchu before he had his first of two crashes. Um, and mm. in, in many ways, it kind of summed up his season in that he's he's you know done everything he can, but he's had badly timed crashes at just the worst possible moments not all of which have been his fault um, no of course not. but um because he's been taken out by other riders but 
in the end, that opened the door for Fabio Di Gian Antonio to, to snatch the runner-up spot in the championship, which is a great result for Grassini. But they, they become the first team ever in the history of the Moto3 class to get a 1-2 in the championship. But part of me still feels a little bit sad for Marco Bezzecchi that he lost out on that. Uh, I, I, I've i really taken a shine to Marco over this year. He is mm. a great bike rider and a great guy. And, you know, one of the most level-headed, mature, but yet also just emotional and raw Moto3 talents we've had in quite some time. And, like, I, I have to admire it. I mean, yes, he rode with a very dangerous fairing after crashing not once but twice during that Moto3 race in the wet. But he was determined to keep on going yeah. in case something turned out. I mean, I have to admire the kid's gumption and just de- like just endless determination in um, a championship that was already over. A and he was still fighting for every inch, every yard he could get. And he did a, he did a great... He's, he's had a phenomenal season. And then again, third will not tell the full story of Marco Bezzecchi's year so much of this season was taken out of his hands. And yes, he made a couple of, of errors like at Masano and Assen, but many, many of his greatest performances were yanked out of his hands due to other riders and other mistakes that others had made and he'd been collected in. It's a real shame. I don't think, I don't think this is one of the few cases where I, just, where I think the scoreboard doesn't tell the full story. And Bezeki is a great talent. He's very exciting. Um, and yet another brilliant, you know, VR Voices Academy guy that's going to come through. And who knows what he's going to do in Moto 2. He's still only 19 years old. Another phenomenal talent. And well, well, how many of us at the start of the season had Bezeki to finish top three None. in the championship and challenge no for one. right until the penultimate race? Yeah, it's, I'd say he's, he's exceeded anyone's expectations, I think, including his own um, at the start of the year. So he, so he deserves so much credit. What's in the end, I think, swung it is, well, clearly what swung it is. Marco Bezzecchi, six non-scores uh, to Fabio Di Gian Antonio's two. Um, yeah. In the end, Di Gian Antonio has scored his points in 17 races and Bezzecchi scored his points in 13 races. And that's ultimately um, what's decided it in, in Di Gian Antonio's favour. Um, we shouldn't forget the, the, the reigning or the newly crowned champion, Jorge Martin, who finished second in that race. But we'll, we'll talk about him a bit later because his week started very well and ended pretty horrendously, um, mm. as we'll tell you a bit later on. Um, but he would finish second. And John McPhee, uh, ending the year um, with a podium finish, his second podium of the year, because he was third back at the Saxon ring um, earlier in the season, uh, which in the end clawed him up to 12th in the championship. Um, but a season that I think he would have started the year expecting a little bit more than that um, from yeah. his 2018 season um, for John McPhee. Uh, the result then uh, from last weekend, Chanon Chu remarkably the winner from Jorge Martin in second and John McPhee third uh, Fabio Di Antonio was fourth and that was enough to take him past Bezzecchi for second in the championship uh, and Air Bastianini in fifth uh, like Di Antonio and Martin that was his final Moto3 race Jean Massia finishes sixth now that earned him the rookie of the year t- title for the year uh, or it confirmed it because he was already leading that going into the final race Nicola Martinelli seventh and Nakarin Adirat Fubapat eighth which is his career best, and it'll be his career hey. best for a while because, I don't know if you know this story, Dre, he's not going to be racing oh. next season because he's off back to Thailand to become a monk. No, what? really. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love GP. You, yeah. you, like, no one's going to get... Like, I've got a little small story for you as well in the other time. You didn't mention it because of Tia Takanakagami, right? Yeah. He, actually, yeah. he had a bet with his LCR... P2 
pit crew that if he got a top 10 at any point during the season, he'd have to shave, him and the entire pit crew would have to shave their heads. Yeah. Guess where yeah. Taka, guess where Taka finished <laughs> during the run? He finished sixth in the last race of the season. So that's why during the test, his, him and his entire pit crew were wearing hats. Can't possibly imagine yeah. why. Yeah, Keith, you had <laughs> mentioned this on, on the air on uh, on uh, Friday, I think it was. And uh, yeah, just to um, quote Simon Patterson on Twitter, uh, Moto3 rider Nakari Adirapfu Pat will be leaving the Grand Prix planet next season to become a Buddhist monk. I think it's quite common in Thailand to be ordained for a short period of time as opposed to for life. Um, so he's, well, uh, he's sticking with his roots. Um, good for him. His knacker is good for him. So we won't be seeing him next season, but he's got a pretty good excuse um, yeah. for why he won't be. Uh, Marcus Ramirez, will be seeing him next year. He finished ninth, as we will Celestino Vietti, um, who, this is a great story, he uh, finished 10th last weekend, and despite only racing in the final four or five rounds, still managed to outscore the guy who replaced Nicola Bulliger in the championship. Um, Come on! Which, which is great, because of course he had that, uh, that third place in Australia. Um, mm. At the start of the uh, at the start of the uh, of the month, um, so what a story for him. The other point scorers: Yuri Sasaki, Stefano Nepper, Those were his first points. Ralph Fernandez, thirteenth. Andrea Mignot, fourteenth. And Jakob Kornfile, um, who crashed himself during the Grand Prix, takes the final point in fifteenth. Championship standings. Then final standings in Moto Three. Jorge Martin, the champion. Um, he ends the year. In the end, probably quite representative. 42 points clear of his nearest challenger, which was yeah. Fabio Di Gian Antonio. It feels about right. He's been the best rider in the class this season. Um, Digi second overall, ahead of Marco Bezzecchi in third. Um, so Bezzecchi does at least get at least a medal to take away from his season. Um, fourth overall was Anaya Bastianini, ahead of Lorenzo Della Porta. Uh, Aaron Canet sixth. Gabby Rodrigo seventh. Uh, Jakub Confile eighth. Albert Arenas, twice winner, of course, this season, ninth. Marcos Ramirez um, rounds out the top 10. Chan Onshu finishes the season in 24th overall. He outscores Vietti, Bulliger, Perez, Fernandez, Adirat Fubapat, Yuchenko, Masaki, Loy, Chantra, Pagliani, Nepa, and Ogura, all of which raced in several more Grand Prix than he did. Um, but uh, that's where he ends the mm. season uh, overall. Uh, what a weekend for the young Turk. And what a weekend for KTM. Because um, I mentioned they won twice uh, over the weekend, which includes the Moto2 race. Um, this is a race that we're going to devote the least time to because the least happened in it. Um, but Miguel Oliveira certainly wasn't complaining, Dre. And he's, his season's kind of tailed off a bit. Of course, we forget around Austria time when we had that brilliant head-to-head between Bagnaia and Oliveira. They were near inseparable in the championship. And of course, Bagnaia has kind of stretched away from Oliveira as the season mm-hmm. has reached its close. But Nice for Oliveira to round the season off uh, with victory. Seems as if that guy likes Valencia. Because um, his final ever Moto3 race there, he won it. Last season in Valencia, mm-hmm. of course, he won as well. And this year, in his final Moto2 race, Oliveira once again signs off with victory. Yes, and, and a nice uh, feather in the cap to close out the year for uh, for Miguel Oliveira. Again, just... Again, just didn't flinch, didn't make a mistake. You know, it's, 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 you know don't get me wrong, it's it's... It's never ideal, given that um, you know we'll get to Alex Marquez, but you know let's just say Alex Marquez had a comfortable lead in 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 in, in that race, and then uh, made another fatal error in this case. Um, but Miguel Oliveira didn't blink, didn't make a mistake, and then he completely benched Laquona um, uh, once Marquez was out of the picture. In that sense, so Oliveira just. Again, just in another league, just didn't make a mistake, and Marquez did, and then Oliveira completely capitalised for it. 
um, yeah, just a just an overall phenomenal phenomenal performance from Miguel Oliveira. I think he won that race something like thirteen seconds in he the did. end. Like completely demolished the field in that one. Like the the biggest dominant win in Moto Two in quite some time, for as far as I'm aware. To do that in Moto Two, a sport where every bike is almost essentially the same now down to the chassis, that is a phenomenal performance from Miguel Oliveira. Again, as I mentioned before, it's it's easy to get wrapped up in Peko Banyar and obviously phenomenal rider he is but let's not forget Miguel Oliveira is 99.9% the rider Banyar is and the talent nine points behind him yeah uh, again like he made it a lot closer in the end than people will give him credit for again he's just narrowly missed out on another world title it was uh, I think it was Tosland who said it during the live commentary he said yeah. he was a very never a true word spoken he said I bet Peko's glad he wrapped it up in Malaysia um, no kidding! Because look what happened to him right at the start of the Grand Prix. His teammate goes down. His teammate, Luca Brini, who'd take a pole position, uh, mm. goes down at turn two, as about three or four of them did on the uh, very slippery track, and just knocks um, Banyaya off the road and sends him right the way down to the back of the field again. Um, so, right. so yeah, that just goes to show, like, if the championship had gone all the way to Valencia, even with just one point needed for Banyaya, that would not have been an easy job in those circumstances. So, yeah, dramatic final race for the newly crowned champion who did at least get the chance to uh, ride around that beautiful new black and gold livery with the engine running. Oh, um, God, yes. Actually, yeah, well, actually he, Yeah, which he couldn't do in Malaysia. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, in the end, it was victory for Oliveira from Ike Lacuona, um, 13 seconds behind. But Lacuona came from 21st on the grid um, yeah. to do that. And wow. It, it's kind of a measure of just how deep the talent runs in the Grand Prix paddock because Laquona's a rider that I don't think we've discussed at all this year. Um, but when you look at him and look at his results for the season, the kid's 18 years old still. He doesn't turn 19 until January. And in the same team on the same bike tray, he outscored Sam Lowe's. Who was almost no doubt um, a guy that I think we perceived as a probable title contender given yeah. that he'd obviously come down from MotoGP and had great success um, in Moto2 previously with the Rossini team and he's back there again for next year. But, uh, ended, yeah, 12th overall. Not a bad first season at all by any stretch of the imagination. That's not bad given how stacked Moto2 was this year. That, that takes some doing. So, uh, yeah, a nice little cherry on top for a decent rookie campaign for um, for Laquona there. And again, a fantastic podium to come from 16th on the grid to second like that. And a, a clear second. And again, not a fluke. He'd been fast all weekend as well. Like, on know, Friday, yeah. He was he topped on both practice sessions on the Friday in the wet. Um, so he yeah. clearly was the one of the fastest guys out there in, in those conditions. And amazingly, for those of you that don't follow Moto2 regularly, that equals the best result of the season for a Spanish rider. Um, because they yes. didn't they didn't win a single one all year. Um, we have Alex Marquez to uh, partially blame for that because he was about to win for the first time for a Spanish rider this season until he went down. Um, mm-hmm. And I have to say, I was watching this race live and uh, I went into the kitchen to pour myself a drink, came back in, saw that Alex Marquez had dropped a third, and I was like, of course he has. Of course he has. Of course Alex Marquez has not made this victory sort of stick. And... Yeah, Dre bangs his head on the desk in the background. And it's, in many ways, we we don't want to criticise Alex Marquez. We want him to do well. But this, I hate to say this, Dre, but that didn't surprise me. 
I don't. I, I hope this doesn't come across too mean, but it's like you were waiting for it to happen. Yeah. It's it, it's it, it frustrates me because he is so phenomenally gifted sometimes, and like he was going to win that race by roughly two postcodes. I don't know how he made such a mistake and just completely tucked the front like that and just lost it on the. That's a weird place to go down the final corner as well. He's just. He's overcooked it and just gone down into such a slow corner. Um, a very bizarre accident. And and just, it's, okay, it, it was a salvage job. He was able to finish in 30. And again, that, again that, that's, that's a testament as to, you know, just how far ahead he was compared to everybody else. He would have, he crashed and still comfortably finished on the podium. But it it's it's frustrating it is frustrating that a rider of of such phenomenal potential is just keeps making these you know, i don't want to say rookie errors but it's just lapses of judgment where he just goes that, down that, that's and... why it frustrates the potential that, that oh, marquez gosh. has because i mean by anyone's standards he's not had a bad season he finished fourth in the world championship this year alex marquez but when you look at how many mistakes he has made for a rider who's, what, in his uh, fourth season in Moto2? It was 2014, so. wasn't it? He won the Moto3 title. So, yeah, his fourth season. Yeah. Um, so, I don't think four year riders with four years of experience in a class should be making that frequency of mistakes. But those are the mistakes that have him fourth in the championship. Because without those, we're talking about a rider who could have been challenging for this world championship this year. Uh, that's the potential of Alex Marquez. He could be a Moto2 champion. Um, but he makes too many unforced errors, and, and whilst he continues to make these errors, he'll never be the MotoGP rider that he clearly has the talent to be. Um, and, I think exactly. that's, and I think that's why so many are critical when he makes mistakes, because we know that there is a, a talented rider in there, and of course he suffers by being uh, by carrying the Marquez name and being always being measured against his brother. Um, Absolutely, uh, as, as Toki uh, as Gear does on the on the chat. He references Alex Marquez as being the Ralph Schumacher to Mark Marquez's Michael. And don't get me wrong, I totally understand the comparison. And I, I, I think I, I think you're probably right. Um, He's more right than he realizes, yeah. I think. But it's like that's not Alex Marquez's fault. <laughs> that really isn't. Um, the, yeah. fact that he, the fact that his older brother's the greatest rider any of us have ever seen. That's not Alex Marquez's fault. Um, but ultimately, he will always suffer by that comparison. And uh, and yeah, yeah. And whilst he continues to make these mistakes those comparisons will get brought up um, because, as they I say, will. we all know how good a rider he can be. He did finish third, as I mentioned last weekend, which is, um, by anyone's standards, a good result. But, of course, it's a race he absolutely could and should have won. In the end, the win went to Oliveira from Laquona and Marquez. Mattia Pacini was fourth, and we uh, wait with bated breath to see what he does next year. Uh, Remy mm. Gardner getting the best result for a Tech 3 mistrial this year in fifth. Fabio Quattararo, 6th. Marcel Schrotter, 7th. Augusto Fernandez in 8th. Andrea Locatelli was ninth, And Simone Corsi rounds out the top 10. The other point scorers were Dominic Egeta, Tetsuta Nagashima, Steven Odendahl, those were his first points of the year. The mm. world champion, Francesco Bagnaia, 14th. And Jesco Raffin, 15th. Um, quick moment of sympathy, though. Or we feel sorry for a couple of riders. Nicky Tooley, who was on course for 5th before he fell off. Oh. Um, what a result that would have been. I um, literally tweeted, like, World Supersport yeah. stand-up when I realised Nicky Tooley was in fifth, and he had literally binned it 10 seconds later. Yeah. And I, was, I like, was literally about to tweet on what a great job he was doing. 
Um, oh, I was like, no! Gutted for him. And, and Joe Roberts as well, who was on course for a similar result, the American, on his NCS before he crashed out. And uh, boy, did he yeah, let he his motorcycle know how angry he was with it. Um, oh, God. Well, he won the fall of the floor, so a real shame for both of those who were on mm. course for great results. Banyaya wins the championship then by just nine points in the end from Oliveira. Uh, Brad Binder finishes the year as the comfortable third best rider and best of the rest. Um despite failing to score himself, he crashed out of the final race. Alex Marquez, fourth. Um, he took that from Lorenzo Baldessari um, at the final round. Baldessari crashed at that uh, turn two pileup. Juan Mir, who did the same, finishes the year in sixth. Uh, mm-hmm. And he is one and done for Moto2, of course. Uh, Marcel Schrotter um, and Luca Marini finished tied on points for seventh and eighth, but Marini gets it on the tiebreaker because, of course, he won in Malaysia. Uh, Mattia Pacini was next up in ninth. And Fabio Quattararo um, takes tenth from Xavi Fierke. Uh, at the final race uh, with Ikelo Quona next up in 12th position overall. Costuan Mier wins the Rookie of the Year class. Uh, not that he had much competition for that. No. notice we haven't discussed Banyaya all that much we'll discuss him uh, shortly because we have more Valencia action to discuss because of course they went testing um, on Tuesday and Wednesday as the 2019 season started I love this Dre first of all I love the fact that this test takes place because MotoGP as I mentioned right at the top of the show has this brilliant habit of making us have Mickey us foam at the mouth in excitement for the next season within 48 hours of the previous season finishing it's 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 ridiculous how, how how that tends to be where it's like the season's ended like the season is over and it's been a phenomenal season and then two days later you're seen on MotoGP's Instagram page 2019 starts now and I'm like what already yeah. <laughs> like, and, and, I, and I don't like drawing the comparison to Formula One because it gets done a lot we we use oh, a lot of people so use much. use the success of one class to beat another class over the head with it um, yeah but but, but as, as the I think as a lot of people feel at the moment. A bit burnt out with this twenty-one race formal season, and kind of relieved to a certain extent that it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we we end this mode this week of MotoGP after a nineteen race season, the longest in MotoGP history. Right. Just feeling feeling so energized by things because of what we've seen at this Valencia test, and no one will feel more energized than Yamaha, who topped both days, courtesy of Maverick Vinales, who was quickest on yeah. on both days. Um, they, they brought some experimental pieces. They brought some development parts, including new engines to their bike. And when you when you add in this performance to the fact that they were on pole position last weekend and they finished the season so strongly, mm-hmm. I think we're genuinely seeing the green shoots of recovery for Yamaha that I think we've got genuine hope now that they could be competitive again next year. There's a lot of reason to potentially be excited here. I mean, again, let's be... He's, he's become that guy over the last couple of years where it's like he loves setting really fast lap times and testing. But, I mean, I don't think Maverick is the true yardstick for Yamaha. I think Frankie Morbidelli yeah. being, you know, you know, being, you know, being so high up um, over there, I think that is probably a better indicator 
in not only that, but the differences between Honda and Yamaha as so a fundamental how, how bike. Good a, how nice a bike that Yamaha is to ride, doesn't it? That the, the Morbidelli, yeah. who um, didn't exactly have a bad rookie season by any measure uh, last year, mm-hmm. um, but we never saw him as high as sixth. Um, and at one point on uh, Wednesday after doing the test, he was high as second. When he set that time that ended up being his fastest of the day, he was second at the time um, in the test. Um, just going through Morbidelli's results for the season. Best result of the season was eighth um, mm-hmm. at Phillip Island. Um, and Spalders had a quite a good point on this um, on Wednesday afternoon when he when he spoke with Matt Burton, Steve Day in, in the World P commentary box. And he, he described the fact that he, he was basically asking a question about Mark Marquez and about what would happen to Honda if Mark Marquez left them and decided he wanted to go to... Well, KTM was the example he brought up. And he said that mm-hmm. Honda would essentially have to design a bike for a, quote, normal person. Um, because that <laughs> bike is such an extreme package that is designed for Mark Marquez that really no other rider, with the partial exception of Cal Crutchlow, can really ride it. Um, right. And Franco Morbidelli falls into that category because he, and any rookie would struggle, I think, to, to get to grips with that Honda because of what a what a peculiar package it is because of the rider that, that gets the best out of it. It's Mark Marquez. And, you know, he is like no other rider really um, in the world in terms of his style, in terms of the way he rides a bike, in terms of um, the, the the amount he asks of the front end of the bike. Um, it's it's a difficult bike for any rookie to get to grips with. So for Franco Morbidelli to jump straight on that Yamaha and essentially look like a completely different rider overnight um, shows what a good chassis Yamaha have and just how user-friendly it is. It's now the engine that they need to, to get to groups with, and they did test a new engine at the uh, Valencia test. Both Vinales and Rossi tested what was a development potential engine. It's not going to be the engine they'll start next season with, but they are now going to have to, following the Jerez test next week, get a real firm idea in their heads, Yamaha, of what their 2019 engine is going to be comprised of. Um, because once they homologate that for Qatar, that's the engine they're going to have to ride for the season with, as we've already discussed earlier with Suzuki. So... A big winter mm-hmm. ahead for Yamaha to try and get this sorted out. Um, but a great start for the new Spanish National Circuit Yamaha team, and we'll discuss Morbidelli's teammate uh, shortly. Um, but the Ducatis all looked quick, didn't they, Dre? I mean, yeah. Dre Vizioso was right up the front. Um, he was second quickest to Vinales overall. Daniel Petrucci, of course, who was switching teams and jumped on the 2019 Ducati, was pretty much on Dobby's pace straight away. And Jack Miller, likewise, also mm. very, very competitive. Um, and it just reinforces what we've already been saying for quite a, quite a few months about this Ducati, that it seems now to be the best bike on the grid. Because historically, we think of Ducati as a bike that goes very well in straight lines, but not very well around corners. Well, if you're the fastest, or if you're within a tenth of being fastest around Valencia, your bike certainly goes around corners. Oh, God, yeah. And yeah, we, well, I think I have to point out Pecco Maniara in this one, where first ever ever run on a Ducati MotoGP bike on a GP 17 to last. Is it 18, sorry? He, he, yeah, he's yeah. on the 18. Of course, Miller and uh, Petrucci and Doggy are on the 19. 19. Yeah, so technically still a, a bike that's a year behind. Um, for that to happen, and yet he's only, what, half a second behind the Vizioso, the flagship Ducati rider mm. of the last three years? Um, that is sensational and yet terrifying like like, like i said it before banya looks like a serious serious weapon on a motorcycle and um yeah like first test 
uh, we're doubling down on that. But that that kid's gonna be gonna he's be riding eleventh you. fastest. Yeah, he's gonna be riding a factory Ducati in the very near future. Um, he looks terrifyingly quick. Um, it it justifies why Ducati signed him so early. Like they signed him practically before wheel had been turned this year, didn't they? Uh, before right. They, before we embarked on this brilliant march to the Moto Two title, Ducati mm-hmm. were clearly keen to sign Banyaya up before another manufacturer did, um, and and they they made the right call in doing so. I was going to save Banyaya for for our talk about the rookies. We'll we'll come on to the other rookies uh, shortly, um, but very quickly, Matt Marquez and Honda. Uh, of course, Honda a rider down in to a point because of course they they lean so heavily on Cal Crutchlow's input. Um, mm-hmm. as, as a rider to develop that bike because he is what you would categorize as a normal rider in terms, in terms of size and shape um, to, to Mark Marquez. Um, of course, he's still out injured. Stefan Bridal um, rode for them on the first day, but because the team wanted to get an early flight home, they didn't run on day two. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, so there was no Stefan Bridal on the second day. So Mark Marquez had to do the bulk of the development work for Honda. Um, and at one point on day two, he was eight tenths clear of the rest of the field. He went out there on the Wednesday morning, and on lap three, so his second time lap, did a one thirty one zero, which was to that point the fastest lap of the test, and only ended up two tenths, uh, to a quarter of a second shy of the fastest lap of the entire test that Maverick did later that day. Um, to which Matt Burt said, "I think Mark likes the twenty nineteen Honda." Uh, um. Um. Um, I have no words to describe this. It's like, and this was a rider had been categorically forbidden from crashing. Right, a guy had basically been told, "Please hold back, and if you crash, you are not riding in RF because we, we're basically we, we're we're putting we're putting you through for that surgery immediately. You're not riding in RF if you've been the motorcycle." So clearly, Marquez was holding something back, or he's a very good liar. Um, because I watched that lap. I've watched it two or three times over. If that's Marquez holding back, then God help the yeah, rest of us. Steady to uh, me. Um, no, but um, yeah, uh, I, I've got nothing for you on that one. Um, that was phenomenal. Um, just he is terrifying, that man. Like he is utterly, utterly terrifying. Um, again, I think he likes the nineteen Honda because that was a stunning lap, and it, it looked stunning to watch. Um, um, to see that live as it was happening. Um, and if, again, I said, if that is marking, is that, is that, if that is Marquez holding back, then God help us all, quite frankly. <laughs> it is. It's, it's a bit of a scary thought, but it does, as Dre said um, on, on Twitter, and as he said again in the pre-show, it kind of, again, whets the appetite for next year because it seems like everybody's quick uh, for next Everybody season. Everybody is MotoGP. quick! And that, as mentioned, includes the rookies. Uh, we've already mentioned Pekka Banyaya, who was 11th, um, 0.6 off. Um, the fastest time of Maverick Mignales and 0.5 off his teammate Andre De Vizioso. But the other rookies didn't disgrace themselves. Juan Mir was 14th mm. overall. He was only 0.9 off the outright fastest time. And he himself, much like uh, Banyaya, was only half a second off his factory teammate. Uh, in his case, Alex Rins. Fabio Quartararo, he was only 1.3 off um, on the second of the Petronas Yamahas. Miguel Oliveira, a bit more difficult to judge because he and his team we're both getting to grips with a new bike, but yeah, it looks like we've got a stellar rookie class again, Dre. It's looking like it. We've we've got we've waxed lyrical about Oliveira and and Banyaya, um, 
all year long in Moto2. They were the they were a class apart in Moto2 this year for for darn sure. And um, you know, Mir again, you know, again, like especially the first half of this year had some phenomenal rides, and he's taken to this Suzuki extremely quickly um and and whatnot so like the class of 2019 looks very very strong indeed so yeah yet more reasons to be you know very optimistic about the future if you if if, if you ask me absolutely now the biggest story going into the test was well the riders who were changing teams one in particular jorge lorenzo um very little we could say i suppose dre i mean he ended the test uh i think it was 12th overall um Mm. You know, less than a second off, solid enough start for, for Jorge Lorenzo, given that he's still short of fitness. I think we kind of have to reserve judgment until we see a fully fit Lorenzo in Sepang next year um, before yes. we really start to judge whether he's he's adjusting to life on that Honda or not. Um, the other riders who changed teams, I think we could say a bit more about, namely Joan Zarco switching from Yamaha to KTM and Andrea Iannone switching from... Uh, Suzuki to a prettier. Uh, now, Zarco crashed on both days, much like Yanone. Uh, didn't look very happy, finished the test um, down in, I believe it was 20th overall, which was substantially slower than Paul Espargaro was. So he seems as if he's going to take a bit of time to adjust to that KTM. Um, in fact, he was, yeah, he was 17th in the end on a 132.8. Paul Espargaro did a 32.1 up in 9th. Yeah. Um, so that's taking a bit of adjustment for Zarco. But I want to talk about Yanone. Mm-hmm. On that, on that uh, Aprilia, um, on that all, leather jacket, yeah, that leather jacket, <laughs> straight out of uh, you know John Travolta esque. Um, it was oh brilliant. yeah, Saturday Night um, Fever. But um, but to quote Tom Brooks, uh, wealthy commentator for World Superbikes, who uh, picked a great quote from Andrea Inone, uh when asked, "What do you think of the bike?" by Simon Crawford, his reply was, "Well, it's got a frame, an engine, and a fairing." The phrase, if you've got nothing nice to say, say nothing at all, springs to mind. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Shout um, out to uh, Evan DeBoer on Twitter, who replied to that tweet from Tom saying, he also forgot to add, it's shite. <laughs> Tad harsh, you get what you but I get what you're meaning. Like, it's one of those, you get what you pay for situation here, isn't it? Um, yeah. it's, 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 it's like getting a fake pair of Yeezys. You just, it's, it's just not very pretty, is it? And it's like, he's here because literally nobody else would take him. And I think that's, that's, that's kind of the problem here. We all know the Aprilia is probably the weakest of all the, well, not probably is the weakest of all the factory teams out there at the moment. They are, there's, there's a lot of a hot mess sort of situation that's been going on with them for a, a good couple of years now. And like, they've, to a degree, lucked into getting someone like Andre Iannone. You know, again, you just not forget, is a fantastic bike rider on his the day. You know, MotoGP race winner, multiple podium Suzuki this year. He's phenomenal. He's a, he's a great talent. There's no doubt about it. When his head is screwed on, he's as good as anyone on his day. But he's burnt a lot of his bridges. He's, you know, he's not got very many options left. And Aprilia, we all know it is a mess. And I think we, we all know it is because we, we've seen how much um, Alicia Spagro has had up and down moments with that team in his own right. Because we all know Alicia's a phenomenal talent and a brilliant developer of, of bikes and of tech. Um, so for that to be a thing, it worries me for sure. Mm, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see again how Aprilia go next season because it's a big year for them to try and close the gap uh, mm-hmm. on well the top four. But of course, KTM have kind of leapt away from them a bit with a podium and 
are looking to progress again um, next season. KTM, bit of a tricky test for them. As I mentioned, Zarco crashed on both days. And part of me wonders from KTM's point of view, of course, it was a great news story for them what happened at Valencia the Grand Prix, but perhaps maybe they're a little bit guilty of throwing too much development parts at their bike. Um, they, mm. They've got so much money and so much scope to develop that I think they're almost... Um, and Spoiler's made this point that they're almost... In fact, no, it wasn't Spoiler. It was, it was David Emmett in his motomatters.com roundup where he said that KTM are almost throwing so many new parts at the problem that before they work out if the previous parts are actually a, an improvement or not, they're already replacing it with something, something else. And it's like, maybe yeah. they just need to take stock a little bit and, and you know maybe that's why they're not making the level of progress that we that perhaps expected them to make because they're just um making having a bit of a scattergun approach to it um mm. there's one other rider though that we want to mention and want to sort of give a bit of a, a, a nod to from this test and i'll give you his stats first of all um day one 15th position 59 laps day two 16th position 36 laps so uh top that up that's 95 laps over two days that's that's pretty solid by any rider's uh, measure yep. but when you're a rider who broke his leg in three places three months ago and your name is tito rabat that is a superhuman piece of riding dre um how um i i want tito rabat examined for medical purposes like, you need lifting we... onto the bike yes <laughs> You have to laugh because it's 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 preposterous. It's it's unheard of. It's it's it is utterly ridiculous. And as Cam points out, it's like something out of a Python sketch. It's his butter scratch. It's butter scratch um, because this is a man that let's not forget literally shattered his leg in a 170 mile an hour incident at Silverstone only three months ago. He broke his leg in three different places. Like like I said, I want Tito Rabat opened up because he might have like some sort of medical discovery that we don't know about yet. He might have like found the cure for like, I found like the new penicillin or something. He might have cured the common cold and we don't know it yet. Um, he's like Deadpool, just, just he's recovers from everything. Um, it's, it's ridiculous, but he finds a way and Rabat again just unbelievable like just superhuman levels of of dexterity of recovery of of, of grit he's still hobbling around on crutches and if you'd have done your leg in like he did and you're an, an average guy you'd be on that crutch for a good couple of months and like Rabat is racing a 260 horsepower motorcycle at the best part of 200 miles an hour and is actually competitive still in, in, in a stacked field. I don't, uh, this doesn't compute, Lewis. No. It doesn't make any sense. And yet here we are. Um, what a phenomenal story. Um, and, you know, a, 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 I can only salute. Um, Tito for an, a superhuman recovery. It's a, it's wonderful to see him back in the paddock where he belongs, and I, I only continue to wish him a, a, a the best recovery possible because he 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 was coming along so strong this season before the leg break had happened, and it's kind of wrecked what was a very promising season of him leading the Avintia team and and. Again, it's 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 a pleasure to see him out to see him out there in a motorcycle. And again, I hope I, I just hope he stays safe because obviously it makes me a little bit nervous watching him on a motorcycle. Quick, mm. but um, he he's sensational. He is sensational, and I I applaud him for getting to this point. Um, I, I wish him the very best in that because mm. he's doing superb. Um, wonderful to see him back. I'll just give you a quick rundown of the times from this Valencia test, then, um, which were actually. 
quite uh, eye-opening because, of course, we didn't get much dry running at all at Valencia for the Grand Prix last weekend. Uh, so, mm. Maverick Vinales' quickest on 130.7. Um, just two tenths covered the top six, um, which covered three different manufacturers, uh, with Andrea Vizioso second for Ducati, Mark Marquez third for Honda, uh, Jack Miller fourth for Pramac. Of course, he's now on the 2019 Ducati, uh, ahead of Daniel Petrucci, who is also on the 2019 Ducati because he's in factory leathers uh, in fifth. Uh, Franco Morbidelli on the Petronas SRT Yamaha sixth. Uh, he'll start next season on the same package as the factory riders in the in the monster, what will be called the monster Yamaha team uh, of Rossi and Vinales. Uh, he was sixth overall ahead of Alex Rins, seventh. Takaki Nakagami in eighth. Um, so that's a solid uh, show for him, just half second off the pace. Mm. Valentino Rossi, ninth. And Alessia Spargo on the Aprilia, tenth. Um, just point six off. Uh, Peko Bagnai, eleventh. Jorge Lorenzo, twelfth. Paul Spargo, thirteenth. Juan Mir, fourteenth. Tito Rabat, fifteenth. Um, and uh, Rabat, uh, Mia, should I say, was the last rider within a second of the pace. Rabat's 1.1 off. Then comes Quattararo, 16th. Yanone, 17th. Jonas Folger, who absolutely trashed his Yamaha on the second day. Shredded. Um, with a crash at turn 10. Um, yeah, it was straight at the skip. He was 18th on his return to MotoGP as a Yamaha European welcome back, Jonas. Yeah, welcome back. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's got a massive uh, repair bill on the uh, desk from Yamaha. Uh, Bikeli Piro, 19th. Uh, Joan Zarco on the KTM 20th ahead of Carol Abraham who has switched across a, to a Vintia in case you hadn't remembered uh, Hafish Siren on the Tech 3 KTM that's going to take some remembering not calling him a Tech 3 Yamaha uh, he was 22nd ahead of Bradley Smith who's now of course an Aprilia tester and Miguel Oliveira who is the second KTM Tech 3 um, MotoGP rider Stefan Bridal um, didn't ride on the second day um, but his uh, 132.0 from the first day um, on combined times would have put him 16th overall um, of course, if you combined the two days. Because Moto2 have been testing as well. Um, today, as we recall, this Friday, the 23rd of November, um, Moto2 have been testing out at Jerez, uh, the scene where MotoGP will be testing next week. Um, difficult to take too much from the times that we've got. Lorenzo Baldassari was fastest today, um, although there wasn't a whole heap of dry track time out there. It started in the mm. way it finished dry. And Baldassari was quickest. He, of course, did win the Grand Prix from pole position at Jerez back in uh, May. Um, so we perhaps shouldn't be too surprised at that. Um, a lot of focus on some of the rookies, though, Dre, including Moto3 champion Jorge Martin at Red Bull KTM IO. And uh, unfortunately, after quite a bright start to the day, um, the injury drinks struck Martin again. We saw him pick up a couple of quirky injuries through the uh, Moto3 season. He's now ended the season with a broken leg. Come on, <laughs> seriously, what's on here? This oh, it's it's dreadful news to hear. Holy Martin, quite literally, been through the wars this year, from uh, damaged wrists to massage tables. You name it, he's found a way to get hurt this year, poor poor fella. And uh, he now ends the year with a broken leg, which is just the worst possible news um, off, a, off a test as well. I mean, you want all the track time you can get in Moto2, especially it's it's so critically important, especially this year. Um, just given the simple fact that, you know, he... It's a new bike for everyone, yeah. It's a level playing for the whole, for, for everyone involved. Track time you can get, you know, you, everyone everyone is on the learning curve out here i mean jake dixon's the only guy who's been a shred of an advantage out there and even that i'm not sure like how much we're really talking about here mm. in the grand scheme of things and dixon you can see was he was down in the 20s in terms 25th, of testing yeah. time 
fifth. So it goes to show you that, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean an awful lot at the moment. And yeah, for Martin to have that leg break is awful time. And I just hope he heals up well for the for, we'll come back next year because uh, that, that, that was the worst possible time. To have to have an to have a broken leg like that, just mm. just brutal. It is uh, Lorenzo Palazzo is quickest today from Luca Marini and Sam Lowe's, who's back at the Grassini team, of course, um, mm-hmm. and already seems much more at home there than he ever was at the Swiss Innovative Investors team. Uh, Augusto <laughs> Fernandez was fourth uh, on the second of the Pons bike, so um, he's arrived. I think we've talked up quite a bit recently to to do a good job next season, and he started his 2019 preparations quite well ahead of Remy Gardner and Marcel Schrotter, seventh place and top rookie. Nope, it's not him, or him, or him. It's Nicolo Bulliger uh, on the Sky VR46 Calex, uh, up in seventh place. Um, just uh, underlining the theory that many have had that the kid's just too big for a Moto3 bike. Um, and, yep. that's, and that's why he's been struggling. He's up straight on a Moto2, and he's seventh quickest on his first day, um, ahead mm. of Brad Binder and Alex Marquez. So uh, a great start to the to the day for Bulliger. And for a rider who I don't think any of us have ever doubted that the kid's got some incredible talent. Um, oh, it's just yeah. a case of unleashing it so uh, maybe this is the start of something um, for Bulliger, the other rookies um, Martin was 15th before the crash which ended his day um, Fabio Di Gian Antonio who's of course on a speed up was 18th Bastianini was 19th um, Lucas Tullivich who technically is a rookie although he has raced in Moto2 as a wildcard before, he was 23rd ahead of Jake Dixon 25th, Marco Bezzecchi 26th uh, and Somkia Chantra 28th, Philip Ertl 29th uh, out of your 30 runners. Um, because none of this test was televised, there's very little we can add to that, other than the fact, Dre, much like the Moto E bike that we're going to discuss shortly, this new Triumph Moto 2 bike sounds terrific. Oh, sounds fantastic. It sounds like it sounds like someone stabbed the, stabbed the rat. It's fantastic. It, it's it's awesome. Um, I love the sound of it. It's uh, Triumph has, uh, has made a real belter on that one. So, uh, yeah, I, I really look forward to that indeed. I, I can't wait to, to hear about there on track. I mean, one of the things when I was at Bruneau earlier this year was just how crazy the Moto2 bike sound in person compared. Like you, you don't get, yeah, you don't get the little nuances that you get on TV, um, like 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 the, like the the waspy sound of the exhausts when they when they come past you. You don't you don't get that on television at all. So yeah, it's it's crazy, but. Yeah, I completely agree. They sound fantastic. Absolutely. And, and Moto E, uh, who also tested today, the first time we've ever seen um, a collective, I don't know what a collective noun is for a, t- a group of Moto, Moto E bikes, but they were all on track together for the first time today rather than the one uh, rider, one lap demonstration of a single bike that we've seen at every circuit so far this season. Um, Andre, of course, you saw that as well at Bruno earlier this year, um, the Moto E bike being demoed. And um, we saw a brief video of um, of the bikes on track at Hareth today from Simon Patterson of MCN. Now, we've said this a few times. This class has split opinion, and I think it's largely... Um, some people may argue with me on this, but I think largely the people who've been speaking ne- negatively about Moto2e aren't even giving this class a chance. They just don't like the, the concept of an electric motorcycle racing series. And I, yeah, think, and I think it's as simple as that. I listened to that bike, and I saw the video, and I thought it sounded awesome. I thought it sounded fantastic. It sounded like a mini jet fighter yeah. had come down the main street. I thought it sounded phenomenal. I love it. And again, I, I've said it before. I don't think this is about the bikes. I think it's more about the principle of an electric bike. I don't think. I don't. I think. I think it's that perception of it that I think people have a problem with. I think people had that same issue with Formula E when that first came around five years ago. It's the same deal where it's like, oh, the, you know, they provide great racing. It's close. It's competitive. 
they sound pretty cool. I haven't seen them in person. I've heard them. They're pretty great in person. But it's it's electric, so it's like, eh. and and people that get picky about those reasons. But for me, I I completely agree. I think they sound fantastic. I love it. I I, I think I think it's fantastic. Mm. Um, so yeah. I, I I can't wait to to see them in uh, in track and racing each other because I think I think they've got I think they're onto a winner with this. I yeah, think I do. Yeah, it's fascinating right. seeing some of the photos from for people like David Emmett who were at the test, seeing some of the charging stations in the garages, and uh-huh. it was fascinating and. and um, I was reading that you know some of the bikes were able to do you know they were essentially surpassing the expectations of how how little energy or little uh, of the charge they were using on certain runs. They were essentially doing more mileage than they expected for the the batteries that they have, and um, yeah. the races themselves I think are going to be limited to I think it's going to be around ten fifteen minutes a race next year. So they're going to they're, I think they're going to try not to run before they can walk. Uh, with right. the new class next season, and try and set the initial bar quite low, just so that they don't have bikes running out of battery before the end of a race, and having a bit of a farcical scenario on their hands. Um, fastest today, and it gives Dre another chance to shout World Supersport stand up because Nikki Tooley was quickest uh, on the first day um, of Moto E testing. He was a tenth clear of Eric Granado. Tooley's riding for the IO Motorsport team. Uh, Granado's riding for the Avintia team. Randy Depunier in third on the LCR E-Team bike. Of course, they're all on the Energica Ego Corsa bikes. Fourth position for Bradley Smith on the uh, One Energy bike. Um, so uh, he's the rider that many are looking at as a championship front runner. He was fourth quickest today. Top, uh, let me look, top eight riders covered by less than a second. So already at this early stage, the bikes were pretty close together, which is good to see. So hopefully that means they'll race mm. quite well. Um, it was Thule from Granado, from Depunier from Smith, then DeAngelis fifth, Mike Demeglio sixth, Jesco Raff in 7th. Lorenzo Savadori, uh, of course, once of a pretty oh, wow. in World Superbikes, in 8th. Um, then comes Dre's hero, Sete Jibbenau in ninth position. Yes! On the Pons bike. He's back! Yeah, at the tender age of 58. He's, he's still going. Um, <laughs> and he's he was only a second off as well. I mean, for, for a guy who's... I mean, when did he retire, Dre? You'll know this because you, you're a fan of his. We're talking, what, 2007-8 right. sort of time, was it, that... I want to say it was 08 was his last season. I'm just having a quick look. It was two. Yeah, it was 2009. He, so nine years since Seti Jubinawa's last raced or ridden a motorcycle in a track in anger, and he just jumped straight back on the motor e-bike, and he was a second off. Right. So, you know, so he must be doing something, right? It never goes away. Okay, real late. Like, Seti really is 45 rather than 58. <laughs> you evil man, Sotheby. You evil man. You heathen. Um, but... Um, yeah, that's a that's a promising sign, isn't it? Like, geez, he's 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 walked in and he's 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 competitive straight away, which again for his age is is phenomenal. So yeah, I mean, I can't help but be impressed by that. Yeah, I say the child, yeah. the, the, the unbiased opinion cannot wait for uh, Hareth next year when he sees Jibba now back in a motor race, um, in competitively in the uh, debut that's... of the Moto E World Cup um, next year. I can't wait to see how this class unfolds um, next season. Uh, to the news though before we go um, and this is going to bring us back onto uh, British shores um, or to British superbike news starting with actually news of the racing Macau last weekend of course it wasn't just cars it was bikes too um, mm-hmm. the race that Macau Grand Prix whether you think they should is, is another argument entirely for another show um, but the victory went to a rider who is quickly um, becoming the king of the roads Peter Hickman um, who took his third Macau win in four years uh, last weekend, ahead of Michael Rutter, who is 58. Uh, no, I'm joking, he's 46. 
Um, but Michael Rutter, who took second place uh, behind Hickman, um, what a, what an end to the year for Peter Hickman, of course, made the showdown once again, set records at the TT, and now mm-hmm. ends the year with his third Macau Grand Prix victory. Congratulations to Hickey, um, who ends the year in style. And uh, basically, congratulations to any rider who's got the brains uh, and the uh, the bollocks, basically, to go out and ride around Macau. <laughs> yeah. uh, incredible uh, bravery from all of you. So uh, congratulations to all of you, and thank goodness that they all made it home in one piece. Um, British Superbike News, closer to home, though. It's been on a cycle live this week at the NEC in Birmingham, and a lot of teams have taken that as a perfect opportunity to announce their plans for 2019. Um, that includes, uh, we'll go in chronological order of when they announced them. The first to announce them were uh, Honda Racing, uh, Dre. Uh, this mm. took us by surprise. We'll talk about the knock-on effects this has in a moment, but first of all, um, Andy Irwin signed as the Honda Racing rider. Now, he wasn't the name I was expecting to get that ride, um, mm. but since he has no. it, um, I think it's fair to say that given that he was parachuted in at um, pretty short notice at the Ducati team when Shaky Byrne got injured, I think mm. Andy Irwin did enough during his short time in British Superbikes this year to prove that he belongs there. I think that's fair to say. I mean, okay, he had he had a disastrous start. No one is denying that. Um, we all, we all remember that. But uh, to be fair to Andy, he showed a lot of promise in the second half of the season. Um, a lot of strong performances, you know, podiums, contending for wins. He's a talented kid, just like his brother. And um, I, I think this is a big opportunity for him. This is, this is not no small-time team. This is this is the Honda factory team, a team that is expecting showdown minimum out of its riders. Um, Dan Linfoot and Jason O'Halloran, more on him in a minute um both have, have made the show down both have won races for this factory and they're gonna want the same out of andy Irwin. so yeah i i think that's a great little coup for the honda team i mean they've they've lost one of their two riders but at the same time um that's a solid replacement and if Irwin can build on the build on last year then i don't see any reason why he can't replicate what he did for the BYZ Ducati team for Honda, another bike that I think is capable of, of big results. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Jason O'Halloran departing the Honda racing team with that news of O'Halloran, but he's landed on his feet at McCam's Yamaha, um, joining Taron McKenzie. Gotta say, Drake, McCam's Yamaha with a rider lineup of Taron McKenzie and Jason O'Halloran, that is a strong lineup. Good God. Um, <laughs> that's quite the team. Like, like Jason O'Halloran is a bike rider i've said this for for some time he was a a staple part of 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 the honda team he he had had that brilliant weekend in imola which ended so disastrously wrong for him when he obviously he went out there um you know balled out um for for, for the honda world superbike team and then just had that horror crash and broke his ankle um within seconds of of his superbike debut um but again, you know, race winner, talented guy, extremely quick, um, has excellent race craft, very consistent. I think that's a, I think that's an excellent, excellent pick to build your team around. And we all know Taron McKenzie is a phenomenal talent. Jesus. Um, um, again, the second half of the season was showdown level quality. No, no doubt about it. So that's a hell of a team for next year. PSP is stacked. Jesus mm. Christ. Um, what, what a year we, we, we got. We've, we've seen now guys like Irwin come through. Both Irwins now come through. Um, the support lad are doing a good job. And again, now that McCam's Yamaha team of Jason O'Halloran, you know, 
and Taron McKenzie is a very talented team. It is. Tyco BMW confirmed their lineup as well. Christian Iden stays with the team. Keith Farmer moves back up into the British Superbike uh, class, having sort of yo-yoed between that and Supersport and Superstock, of mm-hmm. course, for a few years. Um, that's a strong team as well. I look forward to seeing how they got on, although that was one of the rides that had been linked to the likes of Loris Baz and Chevy Forres um, for, for next year. Now, at the time of recording, we don't know what Chevy Forres is doing for next season, although we do know he's going to be announcing those plans in around 14 hours' time. Um, so when you listen to this Why podcast... Why are we always early on yeah, this? We like, uh, we like, the Andy Irwin news dropped literally when we were recording last, last week's game. Thanks yeah. a bunch, Greg. It was. It was. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so yeah, um, Chavi Forres has to be said is continuing to flirt with British Superbikes on Twitter. So hopefully he uh, he does uh, indeed make that switch. That would be a great pull for BSB to have Chavi Forres in the class as well. Plus we don't know yet what Loris Bass is doing. It's going to be a fantastic twenty nineteen British Superbike season. Um, we've already went over the two hour mark though, so we'll we'll wrap this one up for another week. Next week though, we'll be back to review the uh, twenty eighteen Moto GP season. If we'll do our best to cram that into two hours because it's been quite the year uh, in MotoGP. Mm. Uh, we'll relive some of the classic moments from the Dovi Marquez battles of Qatar and Thailand uh, and Mitegi, of course, where Dovi finally lost his championship hopes to the chaos of Argentina earlier in the season, um, to Lorenzo's emergence as a winner again at Ducati, um, to Yamaha's struggles before finally coming good at the end of the season. There's a lot for us to get through next week on Bike Live, so we look forward to reviewing um, the 29, uh, 2018 MotoGP season on episode 89 next week. As well as that, episode 171 of Motorsport 101 is to come uh, next week as well. Dre, as uh, the curtain finally falls down, as the sun finally sets uh, in Abu Dhabi on another Formula One season. It does. Um, it's been a long time coming. 20 Hamilton probably breaking the 400 point mark. Um, and much, much hair pulled out from my forehead as I lead the internet Sebastian Vettel fan club into a deep, dark pit of despair. Finally, the 2018 Formula One season comes to a close in Abu Dhabi. A lot, a lot to take in. Um, you know, the, the like, to be fair, there's a couple of things we're talking about in the fight for third in the championship between like the resurgent Red Bull of Max Verstappen and Kimi Raikkonen of Valtteri Bottas, a three-way fight for third in the championship. That's probably something worth caring about there. That's worth the price of admission alone, I would say. Max is driving very, very well at the moment, in all fairness to him, despite charging Frenchman. But um, oh, shout out to Christian Hornerbow in the press conference for the most savage of disses when Toto Wolf talks about, um, you know, like what Esteban's going to be doing next year as Mercedes reserve driver, you know, a lot of simulator work and a lot of testing work. And Horner couldn't help himself. He was sitting there, two seats over, and he can't help but come in and say, Hopefully they can teach you some of the flags while you're at it. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> and also a shout out to Maurizio Iverbeni for having the uh, self-control not to punch Andrew Benson. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, Such a that... fucking shit stirrer, Benson. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not, I was like, it's been that room he'd have leapt across and chinned him. Um, but, yeah, uh, but, yeah, Christ, yeah, yeah, a lot to look forward to uh, for the final Formula round of the season. Uh, plenty to look forward to, as I mentioned. Fernando Alonso's final Absolutely. race uh, Stoffer uh, Van Dorn's final race for now um, we mm-hmm. hope it's not the last uh, that he'll ever race in Formula 1 because god he deserves another chance um, but there's a lot to go on uh, for this final Formula 1 round of the season and we'll review it all next week on episode 171 
of Motorsport 101. And as I mentioned, episode 89 of Bike Live will bring the curtain down on another MotoGP season with our season review. My thanks to all of you uh, for listening in live. We appreciate your input uh, live here on Discord. Um, and for all of you as well that have downloaded this week's edition of Bike Live, we'll be back next week to review the season. The season that ended uh, with Mark Marquez as champion, but the final weekend of the season, although Dobby took the victory, belonged to KTM as Paul took their first podium. Miguel Oliveira signed off his Moto2 career with victory and Chan on Chu made history and made us all feel rather old. We'll see you next week.